Hi, I'm Jeremy. I'm a dork living in Portland, Oregon, who spent too many years listening to podcasts and not doing anything creative. This is my attempt to rectify that, to create and contribute something where I talk to people about their cultural obsessions and try to give some recommendations of my own. Welcome to Giving the Mic to the Wrong Person. I've been told I laugh like the Joker from the Suicide Squad. Oh. I assume she was flirting with me. I don't know. <laughs> Probably. Anyway. The, the What, the animated or the or the live-action version? Suicide Squad. It's a movie. The movie. I know. There, you do yeah, know Jared the, Leto. You do know, no, you do know there was, before the movie came, they had an animated version oh, that Jesus. had... Nobody that cares. Going down nobody this. cares about that. <laughs> you should. It's actually a better. It's actually a better film. It's a better oh, sure. film than the film than the uh, movie version. Sure. And on that note, uh, hello, zero books readers. You are listening to <laughs> giving the mic to the wrong person. I am your host, Jeremy, here on a rainy, um, uh, rainy uh, winter. I guess we are. Yeah, yeah we're in the so, rainy season. Yeah, yeah. Season night Portland. here. Yeah, in our uh, in our scenic basement studio apartment studios. Here with uh, uh, two guests joining me in recording tonight. Um, guests slash co-hosts, if you will please introduce yourself to the viewing audience. My name's Jacob Mercy, and my shoes are wet. And my name is Doug Lane, and I'm the uh, host of the Zero Books podcast most of the time, and uh, a writer and, and uh, a big-time internet celebrity, basically. Awesome, and we have nothing but the biggest of big-time internet celebrities here on the program. What yeah. can we say? Do you know Jake Paul? Yeah, yes, I'm going to nice. say. Nice. <laughs> yeah. But in a certain sense, don't we all know Jake Paul? You know. So, so who's hosting? I think I'm hosting. Okay, right. I am technically hosting. Um, this is, sometimes I wish this is why I wish uh, Natasha's here because she is she's also good to help bounce off of. Um, what I wanted to, what uh, wanted to do was uh, was uh, have Doug have you on and also Jacob because you know I do need a co-host. Um, wanted to start with just to talk about. I would say since you're the guest, if you could just uh, let the audience, our our audience of Veritable dozens, mm-hmm. um, you know, just a bit of an introduction to you and your work, but and and <laughs> as well as your your online output on various uh, social media channels, and yeah, how about that? Let's okay. start with that. So I'm going to be honest. Go like for the it. Primary thing I do is rant and rave on Facebook. I, I, I post on Facebook too much. I get people angry on Facebook. I get angry on Facebook. This is most of what I do. But when I have time for other things like work, I also uh, create a podcast every week, two of them now, and for the Zero Books uh, imprint, which is a, a critical theory imprint out of the UK. So I, I do a podcast where I interview uh, left-wing philosophers, activists, writers, um, and others, sometimes they're not left-wing. Maybe once I'll have someone on who's actually on the right if, if things go well. Depending on depending on scheduling. Right. Depending on, uh, yeah, depending on whether they're shining me on or not. Um, and so I, I do a podcast. I also create YouTube videos for that imprint. And I'm also a writer. So I've written three novels and uh, short stories. And I'm, I'm a science fiction writer. So science fiction... YouTube and Facebook. Yeah, those are the big things. So three, and I'm a father of four. Okay. So those would be at least three areas that are noted for mature, civilized conversation. 
<laughs> well, wait, wait. What about Philosophy Man? I, that, that's, how about that? I'll throw that in as a moderating influence of, uh, to give me a hint of... And also, I've got gray in my beard. Yeah, no, I, well, I, 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 you see, I've seen some of your YouTube videos, and you seem like you are very thoughtful and very intelligent, and it really contrasts with most of the recommendations I get, which is basically just people screaming at each other for two hours. Yeah, I don't know. It's it's strange. YouTube is so eclectic. You can go to YouTube and just go down this rabbit hole of crap very easily. I mean, all sorts of crap. But unfortunately for me, because I have been watching uh, The Enemy, I get a lot of recommendations for, like, Social Justice Warrior Fails oh and, and that kind of stuff. Uh, I'm not subscribed to any of that, but I get recommended that all the time. But then you can also find, like, two-hour lectures of... Uh, on, from Yale or wherever you want. Anything you want is on YouTube. It's amazing. Oh, I was going to say, that's one of the things that I did want to talk about, about both um, being a, let's just say, being a lefty podcaster in the, the foul year of our, our Lord uh, 20, you know, 2018 or so, but um, but also in that, but also the, uh, first, like I said, the almost like, I don't know, like platform difference where a lot of like, you know, like kind of like uh, really right wing alt right shitheads somehow like gravitated gravitated toward YouTube, whereas like lefty folks went more towards podcasts. The only kicker is that one um, has you know has the circul you know outsizes the circulation of the other by about two orders of magnitude, to put it mildly. Yeah, I think that's even an underestimate. I mean, because what really are just a few like comedians who are doing shows right what joe rogan mark Marin, bill burr has one uh and then who's big on po in podcasting npr right there's the serial was a big podcast i guess yeah big people it's like uh pod, it's like people who were had built a name in other in other media or in other formats or other areas other areas coming to this you know this kind of our little our little our little like you know weekly book on tape conversation media right so in uh like my own podcast which has grown a lot in the last year actually since trump was elected it's gotten a lot gotten a lot more we're all drinking beer here right funny how that happens <laughs> so yeah it's gotten a lot more listeners um but that gets around 5000 downloads a week which is not bad it's you know i was podcasting for six seven years uh at like a thousand downloads a week and you know not happy that it wasn't growing but not horribly upset at that number either uh, a good youtube video will get i mean my youtube video gets five thousand views and i'm okay with that i'm happy but you know that's millions is what you are aiming at when you have right yeah. success on youtube so it's just not even a i don't even know if it's a fair comparison the question is for me, is like, first of all, I don't know if that many podcast left wing podcasts really exist. They come and go. I mean, right, Chapo is this unique phenomenon. I'm not exactly sure what explains it. They're funny. Right place, right time. Yeah. Well, yeah. But I mean, yes, the right place, right time. They're they're in New York. They're connected tangentially to the entertainment industry. More, uh, more, more, more media. I think problem because I think what. Uh, because I've I've talked to Amber 
I know Amber. Yeah, we're that's, Facebook friends. That's, She's been on my podcast. That's that's one. Of, I think that's one of the one uh, her appearance on your on one of your old diet soaps. Amber Ali Frost, thank you for coming on to Diet Soap. Well, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I thought we'd start with your essay uh, for Jacobin, Bro Bash, which is the essay that caused an uproar on Twitter, the essay that brought down a, a mix of misreadings and lies on your head. Um, confused? You won't be on tonight's episode of Diet Soap. Um, yeah, that was the name of the podcast I did before I started working for zero books right so yeah i just sort of switched it that's over. i think yeah listening to you know finding her through i don't know whatever but yeah uh her appearance on one of your your old show for show from three or four years ago or so uh-huh. that's i think it was the first one i heard and then started like listening from there but no i think i think what with them was just right like i said right place right time more importantly because gawker got shuttered they filled the the gap felt that gawker used to serve the fact that they're also friends and all stuck in in Brooklyn and uh, shared a lot of the same. I mean, shit. Perrine, Alex Perrine, Gawker's old um, editor in chief, was just on Chapel like a couple weeks ago. Oh, all that snark and irony had to go somewhere. Yeah, well, it's in somebody. It was well. There's that, but also it's not just snark and irony. It is a left sensibility. Left sen- a left sensibility, but a left sensibility targeting very self-satisfied and self-important like uh stuff shirt like manhattanite professional media people okay and i think and and and, uh gawker did that a lot it's one of the reasons why i liked gawker it's similar to like if you've ever read the av club like especially well before before they got bought out uh like sean o'neill who eventually became one of the uh like news uh newswire editor perfect sense of like perfectly directed snark at people who deserved it and I think uh, Gawker did a lot of that too. But the thing is, Gawker got taken down, and I think Chapel took the, um, you know, took up the, you know, filled the spot of someone attacking all these people, these like really, you know, self-important media people, you know, like I said, you know, six-figure uh, media professionals who, you know, who weren't really called on any of this stuff. And I think they came in and filled the right spot, and were, you know, they like they like, um, they filled the gap. I found I heard about them because I heard that uh, two years ago. Um, somebody posted that, hey, there's this, there's this like, smart-ass, snarky podcast that is directly ripping into uh, Rouse Douthat. Uh-huh. Those of you who don't know, Rouse Douthat is kind of the, what, token conservative that the New York Times hired after they booted, um, was it Bill Crystal? I think they they finally kicked Bill Crystal off of the uh, off of the op-ed staff, and they hired Rouse Douthat on there for something because they want they needed a they needed a safe token conservative and uh i had heard that uh you know chapel was just ripping into both his stuff as also his own uh rastout that wrote a book and it's like okay yeah this is perfect i started listening from them this is like during the 2016 campaign mm-hmm. and that's that was personally where i heard got it from i think the, um because they were they were they were part of the brooklyn media ecosphere they got coverage from other places like there was a couple like other people like there's a there's a there was a write-up in paste there was a write-up in like the new yorker there's write-up in like you know um the av club yeah the av club uh okay where, where it was like a lot of work word of mouth stuff and more and more people listening like i said they their, their own particular the, the particular alchemy of the hosts like a very, very singular it wasn't just kind of you know, just just ripping into somebody. It was ripping into somebody, but they thanks to certain hosts, they had a far far deeper bench of theory, 
and history than like mo- than just like you know just snarky internet dudes. Right. They're smart. Right. Yeah. So okay. So what happened was they got good publicity. They ended up in the New Yorker at one point. Yes. And and because of their connections in Brooklyn, they were then able to use these networks to get major like almost mainstream, including eventually the New Yorker. That's mainstream report you know reports out there and that just made them really big right i think i think it was entirely like uh, yeah it was i keep kind of what like what happened to angel nagel's book right because that the reason that got successful is because it got covered by big mainstream publications early mm-hmm. like you know uh, and she also hit, republic and she also uh, um for those of you who don't know uh, doug's imprint published angela nagel's kill all normies in when did it actually was that like was it june that finally when did that actually hit it actually hit like february okay because i could last year because i remember because i remember because angela did the she did the podcast circuit because she was on chapo she did the podcast circuit in like late 26 mid late 2016 because you know the idea the ideas were formulating and that's where i first heard about it and they said oh yeah there's this book coming out on the same imprint chapo also did an entire a very early on they did an entire um a, a book club episode on mark fisher's capitalist realism yeah. published by you know you guys on the at zero yeah. books same. right and I yeah think... i came in after mark left okay so mark and Tariq and and the whole old crew at zero books left in 2014 and i at that point i was just a guy who knew a guy who had sent a book to zero books because it was a hip thing and had had an acceptance and i was a writer and a podcaster and he said, hey, you should submit to them. And so I sent them a proposal and they accepted it. And then I got an email when they all left and it said, we're all leaving. Uh, it was from Tariq. I, Tariq is how people Tariq, say it. Yeah. You know him, but I say Tariq. But um, yeah, he, we don't get along, but not because of any real reason, except I came in and filled his shoes. So, ah. um, so yeah. So anyway, he sent me an email saying, hey, we're leaving, and I wrote back, and he eventually wrote back to me. And But what I wrote back to him was, should I leave too? Should I pull my book? What's going on? What is the reason for this happening? And the reason for it happening was because he basically he and the owner of John Hunt Publishing, whose name is John Hunt, didn't get along. That'll happen. Yeah. So, and yeah, and you know, I can understand it's not actually easy to work for a critical theory imprint uh, out of a company that runs 38 other imprints a lot of them being like New Age or Christian or uh, there's some fiction lines, but they're just not, none of them are particularly close. There's one that's pretty close, but none of them are very close to Zero Books. Mm. So Zero Books was a weird imprint for this big company, and it's now the most successful com- uh, imprint of, for the whole company. Funny how that works. Yeah, and I think it was before, when I inherited it. You know, it was already very successful. Um, Mark Fisher was a big part of that. But anyway, they left, and then there was a whole battle about they wanted to take the name with them, and they couldn't because John Hunt owned it. And uh, this guy, Dave Blacker, said to me, hey, you should apply for this job. And I said, okay, I will. And then uh, they said, we don't want to hire you for the job, but we'll hire you as a reader. Uh, we've got this other guy, Steve Nash, our niche, who we're going to hire for the to be the editor. He lasted three days. And then quit because he's getting so much pressure from the old Zero crew to that it was wrong to take the job that he quit. Because he was in England and getting a lot of pressure. So they said, well, would you like it? Now, I'm working in a phone room at the at Comcast at the time. Or actually, no, I'm working in a phone room in the Oregon Symphony at the time. Hmm. And uh, 
and anyway, so I said, yeah, sure, I'll take it. <laughs> and uh, so I took the job and ran with it, and it's been very successful since then. But um, so those are the real-life, like, circumstances around uh, me taking the Zero Books job. I was an author. They all left in a huff because they didn't get along with the the main guy. I took it over, and I run things differently than they did, but not tremendously differently. The main difference is I didn't come from an Ivy League school, <laughs> I think, so I don't fight as much as they did. Then you're not English. Yeah, I'm not English. Gotcha. And I'm over here. Right. And I do a podcast. There's that. Those are all things that are different. I mean, this is this is the thing. You have a couple of drinks and then go on a podcast and talk about business. I'm not sure exactly a smart move, but anyway, yeah, there. Well, it's, 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 we're not exactly we're not exactly <laughs> broadcasting live to the world. This, <laughs> this, this shit true. is no, know. but uh, yeah. So that's the uh, that's the zero books story. Um, and then after that, I mean, the biggest hit we had after I took over was Angela Nagel's book. Mm-hmm. We published a, a number of really good books uh, as well. Um, Babbling Corpse would be one and. Uh, I'm trying to think of the other ones. The, uh, Lee Phillips one about Lee Phillips. Yeah, uh, Lee one, Phillips was one that they had purchased and then was published, and when we took over, but like that. Uh, but there were a number of there've been a number of good books. Writing the writing on the walls one that last year I'm actually the most proud of, which is an Anselm Joppe. He's French, so I always get the name wrong. But he's a uh, the first biographer uh, of Guy Debord. Mm. And he he wrote this great book for for well basically it's a collection of his essays translated into English and we published it and I think it's uh, the most important book we published last year. Oh, so but it's sold you know a couple you know five hundred six hundred copies something like that nothing like Angela Nichols book. What would you say the mission statement of Zero Books is? Well, there was a manifesto that the old crew wrote and we held on to it for a couple of years. We've written our own now. And I can't remember it exactly, but it basically boils down to that we live in a, a culture in which we're encouraged to like or, or swipe to the right or to... Like, share, and subscribe. Yeah, subscribe, but we're not encouraged to think. And that the, this is an imprint that, that is trying to work against that trend. Uh, because if we're going to have a, a, a... There's a need for radical change, and you're not going to get to radical change through going with your gut instincts and just automatically responding to things um that's i mean that's a very i mean it was the manifesto is better than that but but that's um the core of what we're about i think that's a really interesting idea and i think it's also something that really resonates with me because one of the things that i've seen people talking about when they talk about for example debating the right online is this issue of there are a lot of things in the world that seem like common sense but aren't actually necessarily true and a lot of those things are, unfortunately, arguments on the right. There's a lot of ways to dumb things down, and there's a lot of ways to make reductive arguments that are factually incorrect, but it's not necessarily simple to demonstrate that in a pithy one-liner that you do in the middle of a Google Hangouts where you're screaming at somebody. Mm. Yeah. What do you, can you give me an example of a common-sense point of view that needs to be taken apart? Uh, I'm putting you on the spot. If you yeah, can, it's okay. Uh, off the top of my head, um, you can't go from. How about uh, let's let's take a big one. You can't you can't suddenly decide that you're a girl. How about that? Well, I mean that, that uh, that's a classic. That doesn't happen. There's a, people yeah, don't I know. suddenly decide that. Well, I know, but, but I guess yeah, it's a, it's like a it's an it's a you know in inverted commas uh, common sense 
argument. It's, you know, it's a common, you know, or, you know, I don't know, the trope, like almost like like a shit, a thing thrown out in bad faith, uh, right? From, from these assholes of like, wait, wait, you know, like, like, like this bullshit construction as if, you know, treated as if that is, uh, you know, people sincerely do that one day. It's just like wake up and yeah. Okay, this is actually reminding me of a really good example, which is that there's this. YouTube video where Ben Shapiro totally destroys this SJW girl at a college campus. And the way he does this is he says, oh, well, you can change your gender, right? And she's like, yeah. And he's like, well, why don't you just say you're 67? And she's like, what? Because this is obviously a weird and insane argument. But the thing about that is age is a social construct. Years are an arbitrary human construction. You know, uh, Jewish people keep a different calendar, you know. The Chinese keep a different calendar. Mm-hmm. The Mayans kept a different calendar. The Russians kept a different calendar. So up let's until... think. Let's think this through. Why can't you just say, "I'm 67"? There are a couple reasons why. One is that um, age matters when it comes to what kinds of benefits you get from the government. Okay, so we we are very strict about it for that reason. But that's. I mean, other than that, I can't think of a reason. The 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 thing is, Rent, uh, I have another reason. Uh, renting a car, you cannot do that unless you are twenty five. Okay, but right, but, all right. So, <laughs> these are all con- these yeah. are all you, yes, you know. You have to reasons. say your actual age when you you know. Uh, you have to, you can't just say you're eighteen. You can't just say you're twenty one. You can't just say you're twenty five, and you can't just say you're sixty five. Sure. So and, there are some reasons, but okay. But other than that, like, what are the cultural signifiers? What is constructed around age, and how does it? It's not static. I yeah. mean. Being 47, I'm 47 now, in 2018, is not the same as being 47 in 1988. Yes. And and what marks you as 47 now is totally different than what marked you as 47 then. So it's, it's a moving target. Age is just a very different kind of thing than gender, which also changes over time, but not the, not the same way. Yeah, and also, yeah, and also adulthood and you know what is considered to be an, an age appropriate for well there you go age appropriate well you know there's this, no such this, thing as age appropriate anymore either this is exactly what i i was hoping to illustrate which is that's a really good pithy one-liner to throw off right. but what I, and what he's trying to do is he's trying to take a shortcut and say that there are fundamental laws that basically correspond with our universe and that gender is one of them and i think one way you could half make that argument is that uh, biological sex is very strict, but that's not the discussion that's being had. So he's attempting to change the terms of the discussion. Right. No, and but... the thing that we just talked about was all cool, but you're not going to be able to do that when you're standing in the back of an auditorium asking a question. And it's also really hard to do when you're having a debate with somebody online. Yeah, I mean, you could try to do it from the back of the room, and if you're assertive enough and you might get somewhere but probably not very far no yeah but but the the point is the other thing about his question is that there's a truth to it that is i think actually true which is that gender is not completely arbitrary like these things gender is the way we negotiate the fact of sex in the world but but most of the time what we're talking about are people who uh have body dysphoria and who feel that they would be more able to live and it's not just you know it's not just uh, they'd be happier, but they'd be able to cope better if they change their appearance and some parts of their physicality mm-hmm. to match what they feel like they should be. Yeah. And I don't under I don't I don't think actually I don't think anyone quite understands why it happens. 
mean, I think it's debated. The science isn't really in. Psychology is uh, uh, not a very solid science. It's not like physics. You know, it's it's messy. So, it's, of course, it's going to be debated as to why this is happening. But it happens to people, and those people deserve respect. Right. And, well, yeah, no, bro. There's just like a dude and a girl. It's like really simple. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, it's <laughs> totally like, what are yeah, you doing, dude? Yeah, I think that's the thing. Is like, yeah, at some point, it is the indoctrinaire demand that demand of clear and distinct boundaries and not being able to handle the fact that yeah the stuff's kind of messy and uh, and that you know these people still need support and protection and and access access to services um free of charge um yeah that it just kind of like at some point just just the, that's that's just several steps way too far for them that's that's another good example actually now that you mention it which is this idea that well if we lower taxes for everybody and maybe even throw people a hundred bucks here and there in a, in a rebate that's great that's great poor it will benefit poor people poor people will love that and there will be no negative downsides or you know we're going to just raise taxes by you know a couple percent you know well poor people can afford that it's not that big a deal well you know just the idea of the value of a dollar being different to somebody who makes minimum wage okay. it, compared to, yeah. say, Mark Zuckerberg right. is, it, you know, so it, uh, a flat tax is a perfect example. One of those common sense solutions or, oh, yeah. you know, there yeah. and there's a million of them once you get started. Yeah. yeah. And right. some of them are really complicated. Like uh, I, I was watching a YouTube video by a leftist by the name of Sean and Jen. I don't know if you're familiar. No, not that one. And Sean and Jen had a half hour piece, I think it was explaining why the race realism issue is complicated. Hello everyone. Uh, today I'd like to take a look at a video from a YouTuber by the name of Roaming Millennial entitled People of Color, You Are Not Oppressed. Because one of the things that race realists will bring up to explain why they're technically not racist is that they argue that Asian people have a higher IQ in the United States. Yeah. And... So Sean of this Sean and Jen YouTube channel put up a half hour video explaining why there's a very strong, reasonable argument for why that is the case that doesn't depend on genetics. Here, here's OK. Well, first of all, yeah, sure. There's lots of arguments as to why IQ uh, is the way it is in the world. And there are, you know, some of these things are true. Some uh, studies have been done and in various parts of the world. People can be divided up by IQ. The averages are different in different ethnicities. That's just a kind of a fact. How you interpret it is all makes all the difference. Uh, but, you know, look, anti-Semitism is racism, right? But it's a peculiar kind. Yeah. And, it, and the Jews are not thought of as being dumb. So you can be perfectly racist and say that some people are smart. Right. Smart, you know. But it, it the turns whites it, are it, saying, it turns what the whites in, say. Yeah. It's Goldilocks, right? Oh, this bowl is too cold. This bowl is too hot. But the white race is just right, right in the middle. And that's what the the white nationalists say all the time. It's like, you know, 100 IQ is the average for whites. It's weird how it's a round number like that. Yeah, not named. It's a weird it's also <laughs> weird how that number was developed by white people. I don't know. Yeah. Well, it also, well, yeah, and also it doesn't take into take into effect the Flynn effect. Whereas well, you know, actually now the average IQ is like 106. Yeah, because like over time, over time it's gone up. Yeah, over time it's gone up thanks to you know, funny how that works. Um, yeah. But it, it gets into um, one of the other topics that I did want to talk about. It was just there's no one worse, by the way, than these IQ guys. It's always been the case. I mean, I'm old enough to remember when trolling meant there's a guy named Kibbo 
who was the first internet troll. K-I-B-O? Kibbo, K-I-B-O. Yeah. Okay. James Perry, Kibbo. Uh, I just, I just remember, I, would, I remember, God, that, God, that's a, you're bringing back Usenet shit. Yes, it's Usenet. And he would, it was, was, was called Kibbo, but yeah. Okay, okay, maybe it's Kibbo. I always pronounce things wrong. Well, I mean, did either of you meet him? I interviewed no. him by email for wow. my zine, which was called Diet Soap back in 1993. I'm glad I asked yeah. that question. <laughs> so, Rest in peace, fact sheet five. Yeah, right. What so, is happening? So anyway, it, it, it's ninety zine culture. Yeah. So I talked to uh, Kibo or Kibo, and um, his favorite thing to do was to go to the Minza user <laughs> group and troll them and ask questions. You know, misspell things and ask questions and say things like, "I studied hard so I can be a genius like you," just to get them to say, you know, IQ is fixed. Blah blah blah. But um, yeah, so Minza people are the worst. Just the worst. If you're being smart is one thing. Having a high IQ is one thing. Being part of a club of high IQ people where that is the sole, a totally different thing. That is the sole single I don't identifying factor. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah, the the cl a club for people and I um a long, 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 long god ten plus years ago, I actually dated somebody who who you know, was kind of, was in and out of like the local the local uh, Mensa club and would talk about the kind of the people that she'd meet in there and it was like yeah it was where having a particular because they had a high intelligence stat that somehow became their it was everything their, yeah that was, was that, everything was, that was their that was their favorite you know just just that high stat number okay you have an 18 slash 99 in intelligence that is like your only your main defining feature and things identity that you grab onto and yeah, it's, yeah. But anyway, so that but you find that all the time on the alt right with people who are talking. I think Vox Day uh, loves to talk about his uh, IQ. Sure. So, anyway, which to me tells you everything about the guy. Not that he has a high IQ, but that he loves to talk about it. Right. And uh, but well, so it sounds like you've gotten got a real challenge for yourself on your hands. If that's the purpose of zero bucks. Yeah, it's true, and it's and the thing about it is I I. I don't even concern myself with the kinds of things you're talking about. Like, I don't care that there are right-wingers out there who are oversimplifying things and making these specious arguments. I mean, I do care to an extent because I want to take them apart when I can. And mm -hmm. you're competing with them for... And I do compete with them. So, But I don't pick everyone. Like, I wouldn't go after Ben Shapiro because he's just too low-hanging a fruit. I like Jordan Peterson because he comes off... Well, first of all, I do a philosophy podcast, but that's what it was for a while when it was Diet Soap. And he kind of comes off like a philosopher. He's not. He's a psychologist. But I, I like to go after guys who seem like they're the highbrow version of this stuff. Hello, lobsters. I mean, normies. Uh, I mean, uh, zero books readers. I want to comment on a viral YouTube video. Jordan Peterson has recently gone viral again. His Channel 4 interview was so poorly handled by Kathy Newman that the YouTube video of it got over 4 million views. The primary reason the video blew up is because Kathy Newman misrepresented Peterson's views in real time. Yeah, uh, Peterson, uh, let's talk about Peterson uh, yeah. a second because it's kind of a thing where he is very of the moment and it's kind of one of those things where, yeah, just this this 
you know, just, you know, one of many just asshole professors who at some point, just because, of, you know, he took whatever stance he did at what is, is it in Toronto, University of Toronto, wasn't it? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. And, you know, somehow his, you know, because he didn't like, you know, because he didn't like trans folks. Yeah, well, really, and that blew yeah, up. And yeah. see, this is the thing about Peterson. This is why he's doing so well is because mm. he I don't think first of all, I don't think he's insincere. I don't think he's purposely making specious arguments. If you look at what he says about the Canadian human rights law, it's debatable, right? It's not clear cut. It it's the truth is this thing, all this stuff is going to probably be figured out by in the courts mm. eventually, but probably not that quickly because the things that he's raising about uh, the gender equality uh, additions to the human rights bill are not going to be brought up very often. No one's really going to take anyone to court over mis not using a non-binary pronoun. That's going to happen what? When? Every 10 years? How often is that going to happen? Not very often. So, but it will be have to be worked out in the courts. And he may be right that the law is poorly written. He may be right about that. So that's it. That's why he has, the fact that he may be right about that and the response from the from the left has been hysterical is why he's been able to f just bring in the most obvious sort of reactionary religious union stuff and sell it is because he has this uh pedigree of being of of basically being able to sweep aside liberals online and on mm. te television and in print and seem more sincere and and uh uh honest and less hypocritical than some of his opponents are he comes off that way again and again like this kathy newman interview is an which, example yeah which happened very that was that was that was that was this month right yeah uh he was uh background for that he was in somehow was wound up in the uk on channel four right yeah it was a, you know, an interview on channel four with kathy newman which just went it's like yeah it was the kind of a thing where she had him on and just did you know, there are ways to handle, like, you know, uh, assholes like this and the ways that not to that really, like, kind of defeat your own purpose and en enhance theirs. And, like, she kind of took the wrong way to do it, wasn't it? Yeah. It, she, look, it, you would say you would say to me something like, she took the wrong way to do it. And, and I would, it'd be as if my response to you was, so you're saying she's a c Is that what you're saying? I mean, it was that. So that you're, saying, <laughs> you're saying that women can't debate men? Is yeah. Is that right. what you're implying? Sorry, I used a bad word. But, but that is, it was almost that, it was almost like that. It was this really hyperbolic misrepresentation of what mm. he is saying. What he was saying could be picked apart, but she didn't do that. She would be like, so you're saying you like to eat babies. That's basically how she responded to him. And it just let him walk all over her. She, he just made complete hay out of that. And, and the thing is, not because he's a vicious asshole, but because when you do that in real time with someone who can think, they're going to do that to you. They're going to just wipe the floor with you. And... Uh, not viciously or anything either. But there are lots of really good arguments against Peterson because Peterson's a reactionary. I mean, yeah. he's not a fascist, but he's honest to God a reactionary. Agreed. Yeah. We'll answer your question, okay? I've studied Nazism for a very long time. It's been four decades, and I understand it very well. And I can tell you that there's some awful people lurking in the corners, and they're ready to come out. <laughs> Hello, Zero Books readers. This video will answer the question, how did political correctness cause fascism? In fact, let's get the answer to that question out of the way right off the bat. Just how did political correctness cause fascism? Well, it didn't.
da 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 Now that we have lost uh, the audience, and now only my friends are watching, I would like to show my special. Oh, look. Oh, look at this. Oh, it's very beautiful, this beautiful girl. And so he, you know, and, and, he, and a lot of what he says about deeper issues like postmodernism and Marxism and meaning and truth and all of these things are tr deeply conflicted. That, yeah, that you bring up. Did you read uh, Suja Hader's thing about talking about just ripping it about his idea, you know, getting uh, uh, trying to attack this idea of postmodern cultural Marxists as, yeah, you know, yeah. in, in not really understanding the fact that like postmodernists and well, both the actual cultural Marxists and Marxists themselves are kind of like, you know, what the hell are you talking about, dude? That, you know, such a thing couldn't exist. It's like, you know, they're kind of like almost like diametrically opposed. Right. Well, there's a bunch of reasons why he gets away with it. And the major reason he gets away with it is because people who like Judith Butler will call themselves Marxists. Mm. And not that Judith Butler's bad, but she's not a Marxist. And. Mm. People who like her aren't Marxists. They haven't read Marx. They don't care about Marx. But but lots of people call themselves Marxists when what they really mean is, I hate capitalism. I have this sort of weak uh, anti-capitalist stance. Anti-capitalism, but not Marxist. Right. So, but Marx gets thrown around. It's a buzzword now rather than an actual reference to anything. So that's one. And that that's not just with Peterson. That's across the board. We do that. So he gets to say Marxist when he means anyone who wants radical change in society he can call them marxist and and they call themselves marxists half the time some of the times if they're anarchists they don't but he will call anarchists marxists too and it happened to me when i was an anarchist i would get called marxist all the time so what was that real quick for the list for the viewing audience can you do a quick uh 30 second distinction between um anarchist marxists you know, let, let us let us define our terms. Myself, as a very uh, uh, as new to a lot of uh, to a lot of the stuff, and not the best at distinguishing this stuff. So I I shall let you, the elder member of more lefty stuff, and the 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 elder podcaster, um, opine if okay. possible. So anarchists believe that the major problem in society is hierarchical power, mm -hmm. and they want uh, to for people to be treated as equals. And they want to destroy institutions that uh, basically cr create inequality in the world. I mean, this is, do you think, what do you think of that? Definitely? Hell yeah. yeah. That sounds good. I'm an anarchist now. Yeah, right. Exactly. The problem with anarchists is that where they point to as the source of, of hierarchical authority, um, and I would also go so far to say that hierarchical authority occurs on different registers. Like there's like... Um, the kind of hierarchical authority you uh, suffer under when you are a classical musician being told when to play by a conductor, and there's the kind of hierarchical authority that you suffer under when you're an employee working for minimum wage at a job that barely gets that you can barely get by on, and you ha and you're struggling to survive. And those are completely different kinds of hierarchical authority. A hierarchical authority that is based on maybe not exactly mutual consent, but based on a certain level of freedom and uh, working it out on a on a playing field that's 
mostly equal, materially equal, let's say, is different than hierarchical authority where basically if you don't listen to me, you're going to starve or die or get shot. I mean, it's diff just totally different things. But anyway, anarchists think that hierarchical authority is the main problem. Marxists think that hierarchical authority is far too general a category, that you have to look at the differences between kinds of authority throughout history and that there's been such a thing developed called capitalism and that we have to look at how it works and and change the mode of production, they'll say, the mm. way that we we produce things together collectively, the institutions around the economy and politics. Both. Manufacturing and shipping and all that stuff. And yeah, manufacturing, shipping. Day jobs. Yeah. Work, primarily work, reproductive work, meaning not reproducing human beings, although that may be part of it, but reproducing the material world, the structures we live in, the clothes we wear, everything. Making and reinforcing. Yeah. And the main thing for Marx was that the commodity form itself, this idea that we produce things for exchange in the market, was a major problem. So the difference between anarchists and Marxists, and my, from my perspective, is that anarchists are far more likely to take capitalism as it is, as the natural world, and think that occasionally what happens is they think, if everyone could just be their own entrepreneur, then we'd have a free society. <laughs> That's a kind of anarchism that exists. You'll never find a Marxist who says that kind of thing. Right. Um, now, the problem with Marxists is that they often think it's all about power, uh, about state power, about politics taking the control of the government and the state. Um, and that is, you know, the history of the 20th century is making the mistake about not going deep enough into changing the mode of production. Mm. But, but yeah, so that's it. That's my that's my quick little thumbnail yeah. thumbnail of the difference between anarchists and Marxists. The point is that Marx was a writer and a critic and a thinker and, and a, uh, that if you want to know what a Marxist is, you know, there's a whole slew of books to read, but if you want to know what Marx thought, you read what Marx wrote. Mm. And uh, so, um, so what I want, if I ever talk to Jordan Peterson and there's, we're working out a time to talk, what I want to talk to him about is not Marxism, but Marx. Uh, and, and just saying, look, you can go after Marxists all you want, but if you go after Marx, you're going after a thinker who's more part of the Enlightenment tradition that you're supposedly defending as a classical liberal than Nietzsche by a long shot, or Jung, who's your big hero. Right. Both of them are critics of modernity in a way that Marx was not. Yeah. So anyway, but... Uh, well, Nietzsche also showed up like, what, was active like 30-odd years later, too, so... Right. Well, I think Nietzsche started writing... Just before Marx died, I think I read that today, um, but um, like, but I'm not sure. But anyway, yes, no. I mean, they're not. Uh, they're, the, the the Marx was not aware of Nietzsche. Nietzsche probably never read Marx. Um, well, one was in Germany, the other one in England. By that point, huh? One of them by that. Well, by, by yeah, right, right, right. Yeah. So yeah, no. But the point is that uh, we need we need Varn here. Varn is no. Varn knows everything. Um, He's like Pre previous guest of the show, uh, Derek Varn. Click back to our, our previous episode, uh, uh, Big Daddy Varn's uh, Baby Leftist Primer, named by Jacob here. You're welcome. Wow. Oh, so oh, yeah, that's gonna... uh, uh, probably join the DSA, um, but don't take it seriously because it's not a party. Um, let's see. Listen to Chapo Trap House, but don't take it seriously because it's not political. Um, read Jacobin Magazine, but don't take it seriously because it's not good. Um, no, uh, let's see. 
This is a harder topic than you think, because there's so many mistakes a baby leftist can make. Right. Um, the, the first one is generally thinking your moral convictions matter at all, <laughs> um, which is a strange thing to say, you know, because I actually am a defender of leftists having moral convictions, but the 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 idea that just because you have them, that other people agree with them, even if they're ostensibly on the left or opposed to Trump or whatever, is kind of a really, really bad way to start out. Anyway, sorry. So, um, so the point is just that uh, it's a big task, and you're, I'm going to go back to what you said. I have a big task ahead of me to try to get people interested in these kind of fine details or to read a big, you know, recapital a big thick book and well i mean getting people to read a book these days is a bit of a struggle it seems like well it depends on what people but yeah that's yeah. true uh, i think people who are committed like I, okay i think committed people who are committed to thinking about things and writing about things on the left should read capital i mean i know a lot of writers so those people who write from the from supposedly radical perspective should read capital um, it's just, even if they don't end up agreeing with it, even if they, but if you haven't read Capital and you call yourself a Marxist, which I still don't, I call myself a wannabe Marxist because I haven't read Capital Volume 2 and 3 and I haven't read or a lot four. of stuff. <laughs> or 4, right. Uh, I have Cap, I, uh, I only own Capital Illustrated, the, uh, the Graphic Illustrated. Uh, I read that. Uh, it's good stuff. It's, uh, thank you, Haymarket. It's fun. But anyway, it's it's a really important critique that, that Marx makes. And the main thing to tell people who might be working class and like Jordan Peterson or even just disaffected uh, middle class people is that Marx was not really about what, what you think about Marx is like he was the same as Lenin. Marx was about critiquing the economy and trying to perfect society, trying to give human beings the ability to change, figure out a science of their own social life mm. and give people the power to change their own social conditions. And he was an Enlightenment thinker and incredibly rational and not at all what Jordan Peterson talks about when he talks about neo-Marxist uh, postmodernists who want to just be complete relatives and just let their feelings dictate everything and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, that was this was the uh, the point of like Shooter Hater's recent bit, which I'll link to in the notes, talking about how it's, it is a, it is as if uh, Peterson's knowledge of, car, you know, again, uh, inverted commas, cultural Marxists came from like maybe scanning a Wikipedia entry and never actually reading any of this stuff. This has been really interesting for me because I actually don't know anything about Jordan Peterson. I've heard him talked about a lot and I'm going to get everybody really excited by drawing a comparison between Jordan Peterson and actually Marx, I think, <laughs> which is that what I see in the modern era and the reason I'm so familiar with Jordan Peterson, despite the fact that I've never actually sat down to watch one of his videos or read any of his material is that I am exposed to him through hearsay and second order. Second hand. Which is, I think, how a lot of people are actually exposed to Marx. I think there's a lot of people who talk about Marx all the time who have only ever heard about it. And I think that's really interesting because it seems like we have what you might almost call intellectual artillery. You have people who go out and either come up with ideas or find new ways of interpreting things or finding new ways of reframing old concepts mm -hmm. and that these are taken up by people and embraced and basically used to have what you might describe as lower order discussions where you have somebody who isn't necessarily well versed in all of the theory but who has beliefs and passions that they want to express and this gives them the language to describe it. 
Yeah, and this brings us back, okay, two things. The first thing that came to mind when you are talking was... Uh, How dare you make that comparison? No, not at all. Yeah. Was the, the short story, The Machine Stops, by uh, which was written like in 1900. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's about uh, people who live underground, but it's basically taken up lately as like, wow, oh my God, this guy wrote, I think it was Forrester who wrote this short story that's basically predicting the internet. Mm-hmm. And it's like about this lady who has never read a primary document, never read uh, or never listened to real music, but just listens to recordings of recordings of recordings, reads reads the criticism of the criticism of the criticism. Um, so we're definitely like that in this culture because there's so much generated Content, this commenting on content, which which is what this conversation has been, by the way. Well, you don't really have a lot of choice all <laughs> the time. Yeah. Gloss upon gloss upon gloss, yeah, as if yeah, we were yeah. renaissance. Let me give you my hot um, take on that guy's hot take. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, so, yeah, so it's a big task to try to say, you know, uh, sit down, think, uh, read, uh, take a moment. And I work in a medium which is the exact opposite of that. So that's... I mean, not only books aren't the opposite of that, but I also do the podcasting and the yeah. And the YouTube, YouTube is real. YouTube is real time video, which means the opposite of that. Well, I think part of that is that books offer an opportunity to present information in a way that people can pull from. And one, you know, I've had a lot of conversations where people say, "Oh, I was talking. We're having a discussion about a particular to- uh, topic, and uh, you know, usually with me, it's online because that's." How we exist nowadays. Conversations I'm usually having. But they'll say, oh, have you read Angela Nagel's book? Right. And it's sort of a shorthand for bringing in the issues that she mentions or some of the things that happened uh, in the period of time she covers. Right. So, and when they ask you, have you read Angela Nagel's book, they may not have read it themselves. Right. Right. That's really interesting. The, uh, well, I remember one of the... um I think it was actually, I think Matt Taibbi talked about, of all people, Matt Taibbi talked about in his reviewing the Michael, the recent Michael Wolf uh, Fire and Fury book, the fact that he, he you know, somebody, the hero was, somebody was talking about the fact that because this was an actual book, which means it is not real time, you actually have, it requires dedicated time to kind of sit and, and consume and you know think and reflect rather than just kind of like you know 800 800 uh word you know hot take fired back before lunch um that it's kind of it, it both it both hit harder and it broke through thing that a, a lot of other things didn't right yeah i read about two-thirds of that no really? one third one third of that book I was say, if you want an, i have an epub of if you want yeah uh, so i got a copy of i didn't have the energy no i, I mean i i it sounded interesting, but the problem is I don't know which parts I can trust. And I don't think I have the time. I <laughs> well, mean, I have time to read the book. I don't have time to... Look, I believe the gorilla story. The gorilla the channel book. story. I actually <laughs> thought that was true for 10 minutes. I mean, it does, so that's how low my estimation is of Trump. Yeah, well, yeah the difference between... What is it? Um, when it comes down between truth and the legend... Uh, print the legend. <laughs> to quote everyone from uh, Liberty Valance to, um, to Steve Coogan. But I agree with John Ford. When you have to choose between the truth and the legend, print the legend. Anyway, uh, let's uh, on that note, let us take a quick break because I need to use the restroom real quick, and we'll be right back. Okay. What's something that you wouldn't want the police to know? <laughs> it's colorary. What so is something, many things. What is, what is something you wouldn't want the Portland police to know? How about that? <laughs> so many different things. Um uh, I never did pay that uh, jaywalking ticket from 1992. 
They they gave jaywalking. <laughs> did they gave jaywalk? They issued jaywalking tickets in Portland in 1992. Yeah. Wow. I was yeah. Just a we, we could do like probably like an God, we can do an entire like eight episode series just talking about like 90s Portland. But yeah. So the, how old are you, Jeremy? I uh, I turned 41 last summer. Okay, great. So we're you know we're practically the same age. Um, only I'm six years older. But yeah, the 90s um, in Portland were a fun time. Do you think nerd culture can handle real left politics? I mean, or politics at all? Really? I mean, we have the things that are in nerd culture on politics. Mm. The, I mean, what do we got? We got on the extremes, we have, I guess maybe, Vox Day. Sargon of Akkad. Now, he's not really nerd culture, is he? He covers some of that. Does he do comic books he, and movies and stuff like that? There are oh, people only like who reactionary takes on it, I guess. But he did a Star Wars review, and there's a guy by the name of I think Diversity in Comics who's starting to do YouTube stuff. Actually, my boss just linked me to an article that's ha- is called Hashtag #ComicsGate, which I am not looking forward to reading. Oh dear, and it's apparently about the rising culture war in that. See, this is the thing. I feel like nerd culture, when you start to do politics in nerd culture, you get a culture war. You don't get um, actual, thoughtful, even, you don't even get, you know, like right-wingers who are thoughtful. You just get horrid, trolling, call-out culture, culture war around nerd culture. Isn't that just politics now? In a sense, and unfortunately, I think my uh, what what I want. I think what I was much more. um, I think what I was much more keen to talk about was more of more criticizing the. I just want to say one thing. I say that as someone who's written a science fiction novel and who's in that whole culture and does use nerd references all the time to try to communicate political points. So I'm not saying it's impossible. I'm just saying it's really tough. Right. But anyway, go ahead. Oh, no, I was going to say, but I think, I think my, my, my sliver or take or approach or vector was more examining, I think, I always want to say just like the, more like the, just the unquestioning, the unquestioning hyper consumption uh, that kind of like now stands in for like a lot of like what is described as like nerd culture because effectively I mean shit what is what is what we call nerd culture is effectively you know just nerd genre entertainment that won you know won the battle and subsumed all of pop culture about ten years ago you know once you know like I said about the time that Chris Hardwick's showed up and the time that Walking Dead showed up uh, you know started so like like oh eight oh nine it's, it was about the time when um, most of the companies, you know, the the huge media mega megacorps realized, hey, wait a minute, you know, if we stop, you know, <laughs> if we, uh, you know, instead of like stop making fun of the nerds, we realize that nerdy folks have the most predictably monetizable consumption habits and interests possible. Let's just start, you know, let's slightly let's tune the um, let's tune the culture industries to start churning out familiar logos, aiming at them now. And then, uh, you know, make even more money and kind of like, so that's, you know, one reason, that's when you get like, you know, sci-fi and superhero shit that took I'm over I'm looking at your collection of Star Wars figurines right now. Yeah. And this is what happens when you, this is, <laughs> hey, this, this is what happened. Like I said, yeah, this, uh, you know, I'm not, I am, you know, <laughs> to quote, to, to quote the great th- thinker, Britney Spears, I'm not that innocent. Uh, that's, you know, you know, there's, there's a reason why I got an, you know, I was born and raised on Star Wars and like space Legos and went on to get an aerospace engineering degree yeah i understand no okay 
What about, okay, so you said a couple of things I want to just pick apart a little bit. So, him or me? He did. Okay. Nerd culture. Go for it. One, get him. Get him. I'm not like, I'm not like trying to get you, but I just want to see if I, if I believe you or not. I mean, this is the other thing. Um, when you get into a debate or a conversation like this and you mm-hmm. don't find yourself agreeing, what you should do is you should test out, and this is something I'm, I'm going to sound a little bit like Jordan Peterson because he says this, you should always assume the other person knows a little bit more than you do, possibly, and that they might be right, even though you find yourself disagreeing. Hmm. Well, I so, think if you said it like Jordan Peterson, it'd be like, well, you find yourself disagreeing. <laughs> I'm sorry. I shouldn't do that. No, that's fine. No, no, cut it's that. good. It's cut fine. That. No, don't cut it. You yeah. should, we <laughs> should be able to make fun of the, the guy. But here's mm-hmm. here's the thing. And that is voice. And, but his voice, everyone does it, actually. It's completely ineffectual because he does it himself. But any, in any case, okay, Mad Men. Uh, what was the other big one uh, on, on HBO? The Game of Thrones? No, no, bef- not the nerd one, the, the mafia one. Oh, uh, Sopranos. Sopr- Sopranos. The, the, the advent of what is now called Prestige TV. Yeah, Prestige, the, the golden era of TV. Yeah, i.e., hey, we have 1,001 TV bloggers. We now need to justify... A uh, thousand one people writing about this stuff, and you know we need, you know we can't, we have to like we ha- we of course have to be writing about something important, so we have we must be in the golden age of TV. Yeah, the shows were better than than I'd seen in a while. I hadn't seen a show like Mad Men mm-hmm. before, although I stopped watching it right. after a while. Um, I never did get into the Sopranos, but there was a whole just sort of Weeds and Dexter. These are all. It's sort of on uh, that golden age right TV. yeah the the leading edge the mid aughts leading edge and I would say that the nerdy stuff like um Mr. Robot or uh, uh Game of Thrones is still kind of in that area it's it's still part of the golden age of TV trying to continue on it's mm-hmm. just a little different it doesn't have that like you can watch Game of Thrones and not be a nerd TV, right. right well I think that's that is yes that is the crossover point where um, I think it's what it's the thing is I think at some point genre television became like safe and acceptable and even like respectable because like the HP the HBO model which they figured out they kind of like worked out I think they kind of tried it with Oz and it didn't really work out but definitely with the Sopranos at some point what you um you you add like a lot of like sex and violence and titillation into it and that that helps you like sell your show whatever your show what, is what do you think about of Black Mirror. I have seen half an episode. Oh, what about you? Have you seen Black Mirror? Yeah. Do you, but, do you think that's quality television? I think it depends on the episode. Yeah, me too. I, but I think it's overall, as a series, pretty quality episodes, most of them. But more than half are really good. I think it depends on what you're talking about. Uh, if you're talking about in terms of how they're shot, they're consistently excellent. If you're talking about how they're acted, I have never had any complaints. If you're talking about... Stories, they're usually okay, and there's a couple stinkers. Um, uh, I think you can basically divide people into two categories, those who like the pig episode and those who don't. And you don't. I don't. I think it's okay. That's the very first one, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. The, the... And it almost turned me off the show completely. But what I would say, the really interesting question about Black Mirror and whether or not it's good or bad is how effectively does... Black Mirror convey its message, its subtext, its arguments. And that's a really difficult question to answer that depends on the episode. And I think it's probably the most important one that nobody ever asks. Because these, and, uh, you know, the, the and, and it, to make a reductive, simplistic statement, uh, 
unfortunately, I, you know, coming from my perspective as a writer, I believe that all stories are political and all entertainment is political. So, Me too. you know, when, when we have things like the sad puppies in hashtag comics gate, what we're seeing is people just accepting the reality of things and that there is not messages are never neutral. So black black mirror is making an argument and Mad Men in particular made a really fascinating argument. I'm going to spoil yeah. the end of Mad Men. So, yeah. You know, if you don't want to spoiler find alert, out, <laughs> spoilers ahoy! Turn it off. Turn it off now. The, the John Ham wakes up in a bed next to Suzanne Plachette. It was really terrible. Well, the ending, not terrible. It was terrifying. The ending of your story matters a lot, and the ending of Mad Men is that. Sorry, inhaled some uh, cider. Don Draper does what he always does, which is he falls apart and runs away, but then he comes back to create the greatest ad of all time. That is an incredibly important thing to say. We have been following this person for seven years. That's the end of the show. The last thing we see in the show is... The Coke ad. The Coke ad, and that's celebratory. That's a happy thing. I'd like to buy the world a home and furnish it with love. That's supposed oh, to be successful, according oh, oh, okay. to... Well, According to Matthew Weiner, the argument that he's pretty clearly made in interviews is that it's a good it's good to do something well, and it's, that is something that was done ex extremely well, and he's right. But one of the things that Mad Men was wrestling with in the show that I think got picked that came and went, and I think is, this is one of the hazards of making something by committee, which is inevitably what TV does, is it, you know what is what is advertising doing to us? And if you look back, that question is not consistently addressed in Mad Men. Can we just pause here on that commercial for a second and put Mad Men aside for a second? Sure. Now, I know I'm the oldest guy in the room. None of you guys are going to remember. I had the uh, I'd Like to Teach the World to Sing album when I was six, seven. I don't remember the fact that it was actually an album. I remember yeah. the, I remember I remember that I remember the the latter day, the latter versions of, of the of the advert showing up on like Saturday morning cartoons. But um, well, there was a version of the song. That was I'd like to teach the world to sing, and it was no there was no reference to Coca Cola. But I do not know to this day whether the ad came first or the song came first, and mm. I I really don't. I, I I tend to think that the the ad came. The ad was such a hit that they took it and made it into an album and and released it without the references to Coca Cola to make money. They wouldn't way. even need to remove the reference anymore. Not now, but in 1970, whatever they did. Yeah, they they forced. Hey, they forced uh, Ray Davies to change the lyrics of the of uh, of his song. So yeah, it's gonna happen but, to everybody. But for me, that that ad is like the epitome of of how easy it is for, say, internet like a vision, a political vision. In that case, it's the vision of an international people coming together as one community to be completely co-opted. I mean, I mean, it's disgusting that ad. And yet it is, at the same time, always effective. Even now, to watch that ad, you cannot help but be moved by Coca-Cola. It's incredible. Okay, so yeah. So, so yeah, Don Draper succeeds in the end. and it's, but, but it's a pessimistic message, isn't it? I think that depends on who you talk to. And this is where we are now, which is that we are finally having these conversations. I mean, right. Star Wars is about a bunch of young, angry revolutionaries killing you know countless people that old dust star joke but i mean that's not necessarily a joke i mean these are all messages and it came across pretty obviously in the last jedi where there's a whole scene where they talk about war profiteers and right. so to a certain extent the culture is becoming weaponized and the fact that you have a for example a female protagonist is no longer 
just a female protagonist. It's an argument about the way the world is and what you want to see. It is now it is now a political statement. Yeah. yeah, but a very weak one. Oh yeah, sure. I mean, the the fact that we shouldn't accept, just like the Coca Cola ad with everyone on the mountain together being of all these different races was an argument, a political argument. It was also an ad for Coca Cola and. You know the Star Wars uh, empire is an is a media empire. It's not just a bunch of stories now, and we have to take into account that each one of these movies is is, is just shot through with. I mean, The Force Awakens, particularly, I thought was just a product and nothing more. And worse than the the prequels, because the prequels were really bad movies. The, this was not even a movie. It was just a product. That worked well for a little while. Maybe I'm being I'm old and cynical, but it just it worked well while you were there. But if I thought about it, I was like, none of that added up to anything. It was one big advert for itself. It was weird. Um, and the 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 last Jedi seemed a little better to me, a little bit. Like the guy who did it knew what he was doing more. Was less cynical, maybe. I don't know. Well, the way I would put it is the guy who made it had an argument. Right. He had he had a point to make. Right. And a point of view. Yeah. Yeah. And I I really liked Brick. Brick was it's excellent. amazing that the guy who made Brick made The Last Jedi. He also did the Fly episode uh, and Ozymandias yeah. of the prestige television show Breaking Bad. Breaking Bad. If you ask me how my time. novel writing was going, I'd give you exactly that same answer. Like, you know, obviously, like, I, I am a publisher of, of, of books. I work, actually, if I would do this in honest order, I write copy for legal tech company, then I'm a publisher of books, then I'm a podcaster, and then I'm a novelist. That yeah. would be the order. But anyway, um, so so, who are your favorite authors? I'm just giving you the the come out of like uh, oh I didn't know I was sitting next to one of my competition here. So <laughs> who are your favorite? Keeps authors? it interesting. Uh, well, uh, Mirakami is uh, oh, yeah. pretty fantastic. All right. Uh, We're done. Good. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I, I'm very partial to early Brett Easton Ellison. Yeah. I have to say his later work has left me, his latest work has left me pretty cold. What uh, what separates early from, um, from McMitt or later? Weirdly enough, he's gotten really into uh, plot and genre which I don't think has done him any favors. I thought Lunar Park was pretty much a disaster. From Let's see, is, is there like a particular year or, or release that um, you think that you think is the is a dividing line of like going from worthwhile to not to like less than worthwhile? I would say Glamorama. Okay. I have but, not I have not read it, but I haven't, I haven't read any Ellis. I just want to make sure. I haven't read any Ellis either. I should. I've read Murakami, of course, and Philip K. Dick. Yeah. Would be yeah. Big, uh, big, big writers for me. Well, and similarly, I you know thought Polinek was pretty cool, but yeah, uh, the you know the issue with all I three read Fight of, Club, but didn't read much else. That that I saw Fight Club at the exact right time in theaters, and then went and read the book, and I was pretty much done for. But yeah, oh dear, Polinek and Ellis, both in particular, I have issues with because for the same reason, which is that at some point I feel like they said everything they have to say, mm-hmm. and they kept writing, and. Both of them. They kept getting book deals. What do you expect? I, ex- well, I, I you <laughs> no, know, I, I don't know, and I don't know what I would do if I was in that situation. But yeah. you know, I do find that writers get to a point where they have made their important arguments, and then they are just telling stories. And I've never found that interesting. Have you read Philip Roth? I have not. 
Okay. He's one of those guys. He's like Woody Allen. I've never seen a Woody Allen movie. And there's just this huge what? block of material. And How can that even be? I figure I'm going to just commit and spend a bunch of time on it. Maybe not Woody Allen now, but... Uh, he, I'm sorry. I know he's got all sorts of baggage, but you really have to watch Woody Allen. He's a major American filmmaker. It's just the end. I mean, Louis well, C.K. is going to be remembered as one of the great American comics, no matter what happens. And Woody Allen's going to be remembered as one of the great American filmmakers. Well, I mean, Roman Polanski is a great filmmaker. Right, right, exactly. And we Ooh. know for certain he's a rapist. I don't think I'm going to... Yeah, I don't think I would be willing to start any of those movies, but you know. Have you seen Chinatown? Have you seen? Hell yeah! Yeah, right. <laughs> we, we, we talked on on an earlier episode where we were talking to um, talking to Paul uh, to Paul Guyton about this about like I think Chinatown in particular about is Chinatown a um, a Polanski film or a Robert Town or Robert Evans film? Because I think who had like kind of like more of a uh, a control. You know, it's, at some point, yeah, it's like a thing of what do you you know how do you since you know since you know i guess individual moral purity as controlled through like what pop culture you consume is kind of kind of like the, the defining feature how you know what happens when you have an ensemble production of say 20 to 30 odd cast members an entire cast and crew and you know, God knows how many you know important crew members. Like at what point, like you know, how many of these people are you know have to are uh, you know can be reprobates and still be you know still find the work either uh, acceptable or at one point, like how many you know how dominant does one person have to be before it just kind of scotches the entire work? Well, I mean, if you want to go ultimate like hypotheticals, like if Hitler's paintings had been good. And he had still been Hitler. Would we hold on to his paintings? I mean, that's like the ultimate Godwin kind of, you know, right. version. It's hard to say. I don't. I don't think there's a connection between the moral character of the person of the artist and the quality of their work. It's a very tricky thing, though. I mean, it, because you want to think that someone who can create great art has some connection, maybe innately or on some level, to an understanding of what is good, and that means being moral. Uh, on some level or ethical I think so, I, I could know. make this a lot more of a difficult question what I Jack uh, I think it's Posobiec I'm not 100% Posobiec yeah um, it turns prognosis out, yeah, yeah he, he wrote a science fiction novel and that seems to be something that a lot of the alt-right types have done so I mean I think the really interesting question is let's say it turns out that Richard Spencer has been working on a novel for the last 10 years and he publishes it and it is the best damn novel that anybody has read in years it's just fantastic you know compelling characters surprising twists do you buy the book do you read the book man all you've done is take hitler and put him now right <laughs> well and i think that's important because i would not have problems appreciating a hitler painting now because he's that you know that asshole's dead he's not going to get anything out of it right. but if I buy Richard Spencer's book right now, he suff he it gets to enjoy very real material support from every single purchase of that book. I am contributing so to him, and I'm contributing to the things he does. Let's think about what the political consequences of Richard Spencer having a great breakaway, a great book deal, and as a novelist, not as a not as a self-publicized, yeah, shuttered. not as a you know a, as a political nonfiction writer, not as someone who's making a political arm argument, but as a novelist. What mm -hmm. would the consequences be for him? Politically, would that be beneficial to his 
white nationalist project for him to be a, a best-selling novelist. I mean, it would be obviously just in terms of material wealth, but what would it do to him in the culture? What would, how would it help him or hurt him in terms of political organizing? I think if it's a genuinely good book, I think it helps him. And I think I can make this even more disturbing, which is what if it's a really fantastically written book and it's also white nationalist? I mean, you know, wow. people have people have always I mean, don't dismiss that too quickly. I mean, a lot of people will say as horrendous as a lot of its messages is um, there's a ah, God, I'm forgetting the name of the uh, it's an old movie. It was described by one of our presidents as like history writ with lightning. Um, that's the one about the uh, about the Klan. Birth of a Nation. Birth of a Nation. 1915, yeah. saw, seen by Woodrow Wilson, rumored, if not actual, Klan member. I mean, we can't make the assumption. I haven't, have that you just seen because, Birth of a Nation? Uh, I, I haven't. I've seen clips, you know, in class. I but, mean, all I know about it is that it was a big, epic film, that it was important in terms of filmmaking. At the time. Well, yeah. I, I, But I, I don't know that it was good in terms of narrative, right? Yeah. I don't know what the, if it had characters, if it was really good. Or if it was just an early film that was done on epic scale and shot well. Shot well. I, I, I don't know. I would argue this is really dangerous ground. I mean, I there's a there's a guy who, who I've watched a few videos of on YouTube who is a genuinely fantastic filmmaker. His edits are good. His, you know, scene shifting is good. His juxtaposition of visuals and, and, and sound are just, you know, perfectly executed. And he is saying just absolutely disgusting things is this mouthy buddha hey yeah, yeah, I, yeah you got it from the description alone that dude knows how to make a goddamn yeah. movie my son showed me the, a video he did on race realism and he was like, he's like this guy's dangerous that's what he said to me but you know what his arguments are bad and the writing because his arguments are bad is bad in my opinion i would be i i i, I mean i think his i think his arguments are presented in the right way if you wanted to make that argument, they're the best versions of those arguments. They're the best. Get. Yeah. So I don't think it's that simple. So, I mean, wh what do you do if you're in that situation? Because realistically speaking, I mean, for one thing, you've got a text that is saying something that is horrific in a very, you know, in a, in a very beautiful, well done way. You have the, you also have the issue of realistically speaking, the money that comes from that book is probably going to be going toward, his various projects in the political arena. Right. So, okay. so this is the important difference between rhetoric and philosophy. Mm -hmm. to, and from my perspective, it's like you don't, you can have a beautiful, compelling, com moving argument that's entirely rhetorical. And if it's entirely rhetorical, um, it simply isn't to be believed. Um, you have to have a solid argument. You have to have a justifiable argument. You have to have a well-reasoned argument, a consistent argument. And, well, I'm not saying that the book is going to turn out to be one weird trick to make, you know, America white nationalist. What I'm saying is that it's just going to do a good job of doing that. So well, it's going to be, going to be good aesthetically yes. pleasing, right? Yeah. Okay, so yeah, obviously you do not want to shape your uh, politics around Pure your aesthetics. aesthetics, your political decisions on what is moving you aesthetically, which is the same thing really is saying you don't want to just react emotionally, you don't want to just react on the hot take because aesthetics... They come to us pretty... They seem immediate. I don't think they are, but I think they, they seem immediate. Um, so, yeah. So, uh, a great novel isn't just great formally. It isn't just pleasing. 
but it does have a line of rationality behind it. It does seem, I think it has to reach truth. And if it doesn't, I mean, some on some level, the greater the novel, the more truth there is in it. I mean, uh, maybe this is naive. Is this naive? Am I being imp- incredibly naive or, up, uh, or, or, you know, Pollyanna here? Uh, we're, well, the wrong, I, we're the wrong audience to ask. I, so let me, uh, it, it, maybe it's helpful for me to rephrase this. Let's call it an almost great novel. Okay. But it's a novel that is the best version of that novel it could be. Okay. What do you do? All right. Well, now the problem, okay, like, uh, I really you don't want, I buy really... a, you don't, you make a purely practical decision. You do not buy a book by an author when you know you're funding the Nazi party. Mm-hmm. You just don't do that. Yeah. I you agree. could go and check it out from the library though. Yeah. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. but not too many of you. So, I mean, it's a real problem, right? But then you have to ask yourself. Libraries, of course, pay for books too, though. Look, okay, like, I like, <laughs> I trolling. like a few reactionary authors. Yeah. I mean, and, the, and the older I get, the more reactionary I realize some of my favorite authors are. Like Philip K. Dick, I don't think is any kind of progressive at all. I can't make heads or tails of that guy. <laughs> yeah, but I, 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 I mean, if, it, your I pol- it, if your politics are that the president is actually secretly the emperor of Rome, I, I, I think you've gone too many levels deep for me. Well, they, well, <laughs> you know, no, P, well, PKD that changes on the era. Um, yeah, it does. He's, I think he's brilliant, and I think his work is great, even though he's not the greatest wordsmith at all, and. But because the the fact that he isn't the greatest wordsmith at all means that what you have to deal with with Philip K. Dick are his ideas, right? But I think well, but even with him, it's um, he was one of the authors that kind of really. I don't know if he had he lived. The irony of the the irony of Philip K. Dick's death is that what he was that he stopped taking his heart meds. Or he well, he was just not taking. It's like the thing like he they, he was he was after a, a heavily drugged up life near the end of his life in the early eighties. It was almost like a, I'm keep remembering um, the thing I'm reading that was almost like he he just he didn't do all the uh, like he he like either stopped taking his his heart meds or he wasn't doing um, what he was prescribed to do. That's one of the reasons why he you know he passed on early at the age of fifty one. Fifty-one or fifty-two, before yeah. uh, you know, before the before Blade Runner was even released. That date seems really young to me right now. <laughs> it seemed yeah, pretty funny. old when I was first reading him in nineteen ninety-two. Yep, funny how that works out. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, the, you know, the other thing was, but it was almost even, even, even do androids dream of electric sheep is shot through with a um, and plenty. And at one point, I'm, I'm kind of wondering if had he lived long enough, would he be considered, uh, you know, like a, a tradgath or a traditional cat? Because he was always talking about like caritas, or um, but, he was Episcopalian. Okay, but but he brought in. But there was a sense of like, and I bring it back again to uh, do androids dream of electric sheep, where the idea of empathy was a co- is a core theme, and the importance of empathy is a core thing that shot. I mean, that's what the Voigtkampf test is. Right is detecting empathy and empathetic to the point where, and it's, uh, it was one of the disappointing bits, even with uh, Blade Runner twenty forty nine, which is a great film, but still doesn't bring in Mercerism. Yep, that's you. Yeah. Wondering where, why you're still uh, podcasting this late? <laughs> Maybe you can see. But anyway, so this has been fun. But no, we can we can keep going too. Okay, now, go I, I didn't know if you had a heart out or anything, but it's no, I don't. But it's but I know that at least because because he talks about how like yeah, just core empathy. For people, is like some of the most like important thing, and especially it's one of the and empathy is like just shot through both like the source text for Blade Runner and the part where they were even like the original film and even like twenty four nine doesn't refer to 
you know, to to the belief system of Mercerism. You know, Mercer E. Ism. But does the original film? I don't think the no, no, it doesn't. No, it's not at all. It's complete. They, they, no, it's completely carved out mm-hmm. from even Blade Runner. The original has has nothing to do with mercerism right. or a lot of stuff. Um, that's one one of the thing. One of the amusing ironies of this uh, Blade Runner twenty Blade Runner twenty twenty forty nine is that uh, I personally think that it actually has it addresses. There is more PKD stuff in the sequel than there ever was in the original film. Like in terms of like themes and and ideas and concepts and there, there's God there's there's at least like it, it almost it, like it draws from like God like like eight different sub stories but um so I want to just what would you do would you buy the Spencer book hell no yeah me neither I would write a really funny parody though even if it was a great book I mean how can you write the first of all how can you write the parody if you haven't read it how are you going to get a hold of it if you haven't bought it or checked it out of the library which then supports him. Uh, I guess. Oh well, now like the internet, free. <laughs> that answers everything. Yeah. Yes, um, the, inter- the internet will provide. Yeah, I'm going to watch a YouTube review of the book and then parody that. Yeah, it's easy. <laughs> That's so lame, though. You can't really do anything about them if you just do this two level down thing. But um, you know, you have to you have to engage. I mean, I think it would be worthwhile to read Spencer's book. If it, I don't think he could write a great novel and have it be white nationalist, I really don't think you can write a great racist well if the turner diaries is any any indication that's definitely true there's a difference (laughs) between being a you know a a high seller among the subculture versus a great novel um right no because you don't have any look the premises are absurd for for ethno-nationalism so you know you're not going to write a compelling book where you're really pushing it just like you can't write a great scientology novel you know these books are okay they're not great um, L. Ron Hubbard, right? No, or it was, it was about to say, or even a, a cinematic adaptation of uh, of uh, such a Scientology novel. One thing I did want to get on tape is, I uh, just your thoughts about. I think when we when we last when we talked to Derek Varn a few months ago, he actually mentioned that um, that I think Kill on Armies was like what it was like the highest like zero bestseller. And yeah. uh, um, I think it, it, well, just the question that I had was uh, about well, Angela Nagel's book is get into just the um, just your thought about you know both how that particular book you know it somehow became a thing, but also you know so many people like reacted you know who who should have been into it you know, almost like reacted nev- negatively against it. Right. Okay. Yeah. So I was um, surprised. I mean, I wasn't entirely surprised, but I was surprised by the socialist. Right. Oh, sorry. It's, it's just a note that you know we we can also connect this to her both covering and talking to Richard Spencer oh, right, right. and getting a shitload of uh, just getting a absolute amount of shit just for uh, you know the old thing of like hey if I deign to talk to you I am thus therefore somehow like acknowledging you as valid to exist or whatever anyway, yeah right sorry right. go back so, to okay, yeah yeah uh, so yeah and I'm getting tr- trouble for wanting to interview Jordan Peterson that's similar. Um, but I think that's separate from why the book itself got the reaction it did. Okay. Because um, I think they're different reactions. I right. think they're both a little, they're both wrong, but they're wrong for different reasons. So the reaction to Nagel really was weird because it got universal praise at mm. first, really. But it got universal praise from the New York crew, basically Jacobin, Current Affairs, 
uh, I mean, yeah, she was of. on Chapo back in like November before. Yeah, yeah anyway. Chapo, um, uh, and and the New Republic people. Th- this is a group of intellectuals on the left who know each other and who have a particular socialist perspective. Mm. Not necessarily. Okay, up until this point, I wouldn't have said they were the most radical, and I still don't think they are. But what I found was what was very disappointing was that the sectarian left, and I, this is what I think of them as now rather than as the Marxist left, the sectarian left was entirely unable to do anything with Nagel's book except denounce it. Oh, so? Yeah, I don't, well, I mean, there were a lot of bad reviews, and I don't just mean like reviews that dissed her book, but the reviews that were based on misreadings and kind of hysterical reactions and that were disjointed. Um, Red Wedge, there was a review in Red Wedge, which is like the kind of prototypical review from the socialist sectarian left or Marxist left. Um, Real quick, can you can you describe what you mean by distinguish between the sectarian left versus, say, the socialist left? Yeah, the Brooklyn socialist left. Uh, you know, the, the, the sectarian left comes out of actual Marxist groups. That had existed in the United States for a while, like the ISO or oh, okay, like like leftover like seventies uh, like Marxist trot, stuff, yeah, trot yeah. groups of various and... kind, but not just trot. I mean, Leninist groups, the Marxist left that survived from the Cold War into now. Okay, yeah, uh, they're not um, coming to socialism fresh. These are organizations that I mean, look, the DSA is in a way a part of the sectarian left because it's been around for so long by that definition but it's it's you know it's not uh part of the doesn't can any way connect to the russian revolution right right it, well it's i say this is a there's a dsa poster right there um right yeah it's kind of it's almost the thing of like what the dsa was versus what it is you know from like six thousand members forever now thirty one thirty two thousand plus anyway go on. Yeah. right 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 i mean when i was okay here's how i think about it now now varn would be the guy who really could understand really explain this because he knows the history of all these little groups better. right he he was the one who recommended we read certain things about the history yes but the way i think about it is the groups that sell newspapers and those that don't <laughs> and the groups that sell newspapers they have claims to they they're usually more tied to the Russian Revolution and their outlook or to the Maoist Revolution and that they've been around for a long time and that their membership is often older, although not always. Sometimes there are new little groups that pop up, like um, uh, the Communist League of Tampa that are like new versions of old sectarian groups. Mm. But what I found is that when you try to be actually thoroughly revolutionary Marxist, the reaction to Angela Nagel's book was very bad. And I don't, it really tr- actually troubles me that the, rev- the so-called revolutionaries couldn't take on that message. Hmm. Because, and instead were um, very much wed to the idea that you basically don't ever criticize anything that's said in defense of any person of color. It doesn't matter, or not any person like a given person but like anything that's said in the name of people of color you simply do not criticize it doesn't matter what it is it's being said so for instance you don't criticize call-out culture based on on the on twitter and tumblr because uh well that's about race and we are always on the right side of that issue it's just 
I don't, and I, I think I've tried to think about why is this the case? Why is the socialist, radical revolutionary socialist left so completely unable to be coherent about this? And I think it's because they're really desperately looking for a radical subject, for a revolutionary subject. They need a group that will not only be willing to go to war and overthrow the current system, but will know what to do after. So, and, and, and they don't know what to do after. So they're looking for a kind of a mystical subject, and they've found it in whoever is basically the most oppressed in the moment. And, who, and you know, it really shifts around, but basically in the oppressed. Um, so as long that's as, my thought on it. Like, like, like impulses or tendencies that have kind of almost like just hung around since like the early 70s or... Yeah, I mean, earlier than that sometimes, but yeah, I mean, I just think that, I mean, the, the the groups have long histories. They've obviously changed and split and split and split, but I think, like, I was involved in one of these organizations, and I won't say who they were, but um, I think that there was a sense that they are very good at crit criticizing the Democratic Party. They're very good at, well, I don't know about that, but they're very good at criticizing certain kinds of economic liberal critiques of capitalism. Okay. They, but when it came to organizing a revolution or reaching out to people or trying to bring people together to do political change, they had really static ideas, and they basically had a lot of magical thinking. It was just, um, we're going to do, we're going to put out this, uh, these critiques, and eventually the revolutionary class, whatever that would be, is going to find them, and when they need them, they'll use them. That was it. Oh, the, um... and, so you don't, and you certainly don't critique those people. Whoever they happen to be, we don't really know who they are, but whoever they happen to be. But isn't critiquing call-out culture, in a sense, a call-out of its own? No, because it's not aimed at any individual. That was a bit. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we do occasionally enjoy the ironic bit here, yeah. <laughs> I mean, look, it's not a very deep critique. And to get, there's, there's a whole industry which will peg you at least something to just continually make it. And this is something that I really am tr try to resist because it's, it, you know, uh, it's it gets a little more clicks when you do say the same thing about call-out culture being bad. You know, if you say call-out culture is bad, people will click on that, especially if you say it in certain ways. Yeah. But, but, yeah, it's not a very deep critique. It's something we should be able to take on. It's like these tactics aren't working, folks. Trying to shut down um, every right-winger who comes to a college campus is backfiring on us. Uh this is, we, we are not coming off well right now. And we should be absolutely, look, Hillary Clinton shouldn't have lost that election, and we should absolutely be where it's at in terms of coolness right now. We've got this 75-year-old senile buffoon in the, in the Oval Office, and he still manages, I mean, he's got a horribly low approval rating, but the people around him still manage to sometimes make us look foolish. It's ridiculous. We should be wiping the floor with these people and we're not so we're something's wrong with us we need to look at what's wrong mm. uh, well i mean i think there's a distinction to be made there though i i mean i guess i'm not clear on the connection between these uh, sectarian left and the larger left as a whole well this um, yeah, uh, uh, good I, question I, I i mean to be honest like i mean can you name a sectarian left publication because i don't think i've Heard of them. Give me, give, give me, give me ten seconds. Okay. No, that, that was that was. Uh, damn it! No. I know it's a rhetorical thing. Rhetorical now I'm going to get an answer. No, I can name uh, some. I mean, I sent them copies of Andrew. Well, let me let me reframe it. Can you name one that I would necessarily know? I mean, 
No. As as a, as what I would describe as a, you know, No, casual... you, you, you know what? I may be talking about something that doesn't matter. But it mattered to me as a Marxist because I wanted to see people who were on the socialist left and part of these little sectarian groups. I mean, this isn't even... Like, Socialist Action has a newspaper. The ISO has a newspaper. You know, the Spartacus League. Uh, there are a variety of different periodicals. And, and these, you know, Red Wedge would be one. Um, Counterpunch isn't sectarian, but it's, it, it bashed uh, Handel Nagel's book. But okay, weirdly, I'm familiar with Counterpunch. Yeah. Least. So, well, um, and I, I, as far as matters, I would make a distinction. A good argument is a good argument no matter right, where it comes from. Right. And that's something that drives me nuts about a lot of the discourse online now, which is, you know, shut up. You don't have as many followers on Twitter as I do, oh, so, so your argument is invalid. So like, that really, really, really bothers me. Yeah, it's really, really dumb. But no, um, no, I was disappointed by the actual Marxist left's reaction. And when I say actually, that's just this side of really existing. <laughs> it doesn't mean that they were good Marxists. It just means that they have organizations. Um, but it was troubling to me uh, that, that that was the reaction. And it would be less troubling to me if I if there were any of them were any good. But none of them were. Very, I mean, there were some serious, there's some serious criticism of Nagel's book. No one made them. The, the the criticism is like she doesn't even talk about the economic crisis mm -hmm. in the book it's an it's it is of what it is critiquing in some ways because it focuses on online culture um so it only goes so far it's not going to really i mean in the end it's a basically an endorsement of you know corbin or bernie sanders or and that that may not be good enough but it's a start it's something you know that does remind me uh, a related question is it have back to back to zero books businesses just because i'm you know i'm personally curious you know um what the hell do you do y'all do for uh for editing yeah well uh, okay <laughs> we have editors who work for jhp who edit all the books? Because I was like, re I remember like reading that like book, through a couple. Of, there's a couple other zero books that I was went through with my. I just said, okay, hell with this. I'm getting. I have my my red pencil, and I'm gonna get, just start like just. It doing, wasn't like, just Nagel's book. Oh no! Oh hell no! No no! This is like other like, uh, books that were published in, like 2015. I was like just I just started like just copy editing with my red pencil. The classic book, Capitalist Realism, mm -hmm. is riddled with errors. Right. This uh, I only I only I I only it on a ebook, so I, I wasn't able to write on that. But. Yeah. Uh, we have, um, and I, and look, I would go back and I would have these things re-edited, but it costs money, and, and mm. you know, so, um, and I, and I'm not actually in charge. I'm a freelance editor, so I don't have a contract. I have, I, I get paid month to month to be the freelance editor or freelance publisher. What does it say? <laughs> how does one? How does the? Uh, how does one be a, a freelance publisher? Well, I decide what books get published. I do the publicity. Mm. I and that's it. Oh. That's that's my job. I I don't I'm not but I can't make big decisions about how we spend the money. Ah. I'm always under the I I'm always uh, told how to spend the money by John Hunt. Now, if I'm but I always make choices too as to like what I ask for. Like if I made a big stink about copy editing these books correctly, I could probably get it done right now cuz I'm pretty well liked. I do want to hire another copy editor for Zero Books, but it isn't the most important thing for what Zero Books is doing. 
it's important. It'd be nice for it to be better. It'd be nice for it to be perfect. But it, no books are ever perfect. But it'd be nice for it to be good, really solid. And it's about, uh, I'd say, it's really sketchy. But it's always been that way because it's really a seat of your pants kind of mm. operation. What, what do you think is the would be the most important thing for Zero Books to uh, acquire or add right now? The most important thing for Zero Books to do right now is not be led by Nagel success. No, that that means to find the next step rather than to start down this road. Look, Nagel isn't being led by Nagel. She's I mean she's going somewhere else next, right? She's not rewriting Kill All Normies. Good, we yeah. don't yeah we don't need to publish Kill All Normies again. Yeah, so yeah, she's mentioned that she's like, yeah, anyway, sorry. So, so the, that's the most important thing is what we shouldn't do. We shouldn't just start, we, we could easily turn into what people say we are, which is like the Dave Rubin of the Marxist left or something. We do not want that. So that's I, the first whoa, thing. Whoa, that is harsh. Very harsh. That's what some of my worst critics have said that kind of shit. Dear, that, Jesus. That, <laughs> like, basically, anytime you criticize call-out culture, you're going to be called, compared to people in the anti-social justice warrior industry. That's it. Um, and I understandably so, because, you know, the algorithm will link you, you know, mm. to some degree. Um, but no, it's that's total crap, um, Just that accusation. But it's not also what we want to avoid doing. And we've received submissions mm. that would, I would say, completely fit. I had a... I won't go into that. That's But, but yeah, I had some books that... I, um, and then there were certainly lots of books that we just completely rejected because they were trying to be part of that anti-social justice warrior industry, and that's what we're interested in doing. The other thing that I think is really important is to try to um, bring some sort of materialist uh, analysis of the present moment uh, you know, into print and to rethink the connection between uh, the superstructure and the base is kind of what I'm thinking about right now, but... I did a podcast with Lauren about that. It's something I'd like to have books come out about, but it's um, hmm. a very abstract way of saying it. Just out of curiosity, uh, did you hear what you would consider to be any, I'm not even going to say correct, but thoughtful or interesting critiques or even... The uh, one from Counterpunch wasn't horrible because it was actually about... It wasn't saying she's a transphobe or she's this or that. It was saying... Oh, she missed this part of American history. She's Irish, and she missed this, this, and this. Well, I was actually going to ask about uh, engagement from the right. Oh, from the right. Oh, or, or was it just kind of almost like near universal rejection, or or, or did like some of the paleo? No, the problem was we got good reviews from some of the right. That was one of the big problems. Like ah. National Review gave us a good review. Oh dear. Um, oh, you're, you know, you, yeah, that's right. That's right. I can remember. Yeah. So at some point it's almost like did they sincerely that's like not it like the far right that's not the alt right but that's the, the right that's conservative yeah that's that yeah never and trump or neocon yeah yeah that, well, right I mean, the did, never trump or neocon but did they necessarily have anything interesting to say about the book hmm. just that they, just that it was it wasn't a total blanket condemnation hmm. was kind of i think used as a slam against the book wait a minute how can you be a proper book if you know these assholes like you or sure. didn't hate you yeah, no, they, 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 I don't remember but they they really praised the book and so what I remember from that was they praised the book and that was the most important thing <laughs> reading it they didn't have anything to add to the book except one of the things the things I thought were true about it they didn't like you know they didn't say things that I thought were not true about it but were also praised they that was weird because I didn't find myself hating anything they said about it in the National Review they had this look I kind of have this sort of classical liberal streak in me. In other words, I think free speech is very important. Um, I'm not a free... I don't believe in the markets, 
as the greatest mediator of speech. I don't believe I, I don't believe in property rights as the foundation of society, but I do believe that free speech is a, a paramount value, and that's all they were really talking about is the need for debate. And I mean, I, I don't remember every line of that review. The, the, there were some big reviews. You know what the the one review I remember from the alt right was? It was about the copy editing. It was hmm. about it was about <laughs> it was about hey, this is how decadent the left is. <laughs> oh dear! If, if that's that was like shit. If that if that's somehow got that if that's the, if that's their foothold, that was their foothold. It's like it. I yeah. always say, you know, the left and the right are much more similar than we think. Yeah, they're uh, <laughs> uh, so both pedants, basically. Yeah, basically. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I don't. I, I would. You know, it's, uh, <laughs> I, I'm trained as an engineer, and but even in my for the the brief few years that I was a. Uh, a uh, an alt weekly rock crit. I learned just a couple of things and trying to be better. And at some point, it's like, no, my I'm the son of two English teachers, and I have to anyway. Right. I mean, look, there was the copy editing problems, but the other thing they would say is like, oh, and it isn't, um, you know, the, the equal to Shakespeare or some, some something like. That. I mean, it was. It's not. A, yeah. That's the probably, standards that's of fair. writing in the, the modern that's, society. That's fair. It wasn't Shakespeare. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. It's true, but I mean, but, but the, the point they, is, they were right. It was not Shakespeare. They, that in was, other words. That was, you know, this nostalgic looking back on a time when literary the, the the literary was more supposedly complex and these kinds of things wouldn't gone through. And it's true, it's true that when you spent more money in product and when printing books cost a lot of money, things like copy editing wouldn't be a competitive expense, and you would make damn sure that if you're going to spend that much money, every single word was right. Whereas now, where you're doing small print runs. And the copy editing is more expensive than the print run. Yeah, print on demand. Yeah, then uh, you are going to skimp on the print, the, the copy editing, and you're going to spend just as amount as much as you need to get the, the copies out that can sell. And in the case of Nagel, it was quite a lot. Now, right now, if you bought a copy of Angel Nagel's book, Kill All Normies, it would not be riddled with copy editors, uh, copy editing problems, because we've gone through several iterations and reprints of that book. So there's been it's been copy edited and copy edited and copy edited and then sent to a German publisher, translator, and copy edited again because they were saying, "Hey, you missed this and this and this." Yeah, that seems like such a sad argument to hear from them because I, if I had to guess, the last book that they probably read was Shogun. So. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, ladies and gentlemen, uh, you uh, we're, we're an esoteric podcast. Uh, no matter what you think we uh, we hear in uh, about whatever the thirty odd episodes of whatever bullshit we've talked about, did you expect to hear about James Clavell's? What the nineteen eighty? What the hell did that I come out? I was going to say, wasn't that a miniseries? Yeah, no, well? that was yeah, it was a mini. It was it was a <laughs> it's a dad book. My dad, it was it's, it's like a boomer, your dad's book. Yeah, it's a, it's a boomer dad book. Like even the paperback is like this, like like James Michener two inch thick thing. Yeah, it was yeah. a miniseries with I mm. believe Jane, uh, like Richard Chamberlain in like nineteen eighty something. And this is Shogun, the staggering saga of feudal Japan, the story of ruling warlords battling for ultimate supremacy. They are challenged by a stranger from across the seas, John Blackthorne, the one man with the power to change Japan's destiny for all time. This is the opening chapter of the six-part presentation starring Richard Chamberlain and Toshiro Mifune, the epic tale of power and passion, beauty and tragedy. That is Shogun. Yeah, no, so. the thing is, the guy who did who said this was, I know who it was. It was He's a YouTube, kind of minor YouTube celebrity. There's one bit where he said like Trump is going to raise Atlantis from the bottom of the sea Trump is going to 
uh, reach the, uh, the, the complete the Hegelian dialectic. Trump is uh, uh, going to bring the aliens uh, back to Earth. And um, I don't believe in democracy. I believe in the Hegelian dialectic. This is a, I forget the guy's name, but he was like on a at a protest or something. That guy's name was Ben Garrison. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know, but he's like he's got a minor Twitter following and. And he's big into being um, a scholar of uh, philology. I mean, he's like big into understanding the history of Western culture and re- having read a lot, basically, and uh, and being a reactionary prick and virgin. Yeah. Those are the things that he's big Those into. Those are popular topics. Yeah. But anyway, we're we're gonna move on into what we can you could call the lightning round episode okay. uh, segment. Let's start off with: uh, Can you uh, give us what? Uh, let's say what comes to mind, or or tell us a story, or whatever. What do you think when I ask you about um, what was Left Forum like? Oh, the Left Forum. I've been there, I think three times, and the last time I was there, I was really made aware of the fact that I was too old to be cool with the New York crowd. Huh. And and so that that's what I think of Left Forum when I think of it first. But the second thing I think about it is um, seeing people like David Harvey for the first time, like in person, and Christopher Hedges, and um, uh, Sam Cedar, uh, and uh, just being in New York also. It's exciting. Just So the Left Forum is an incredibly cool place to be because you get to see all these left-wing people and even if you disagree with them completely you, you get to meet them you're and just also, in the room with them yeah yeah and also it's in new york city which i've now come to really i mean i kind of always wanted to live in new york and never have but i've come to enjoy going to left forum just to be in new york city that's um yeah that's what uh for for many well for a handful of years that's what cmj was like for me as a college radio guy because uh, the cmj music fest was always that bit that weekend in september october where every uh, you know a handful of people from the, the radio station would we would either fly or like caravan out to and we would be in south you know southeastern we'd be in you know parts of parts of Manhattan for a weekend and do like you know college radio nerd indie rock shit uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, no, New York's fun uh, on a very related note to the left forum um, how were the Posadists to talk to oh well I should have He's great. Eugene is the guy's name. I forget his last name, uh, or I can't pronounce it. One of those two. Those often go together. And for the, anybody in the audience who don't know what the Posadists are, we'll link to we'll link to it in the show notes. Well, you are. What is your okay? What is your title? Uh, my my cadre name is uh, Comrade Communicator of the Intergalactic Workers League. Posadists. Okay. Uh huh. And when did you join the party? Well, uh, I joined the party a couple of years ago when I met Comrade High Commander on Brighton Beach, and uh, that is where the party generally meets, by the water. The water is very important to Posadists. I think that Eugene of the Posadists organization has a real problem because there's been actual disclosure. So this really? is a problem. Wow. Yeah. Um, you know, he, he, he said that the only reason Trump won was because they were the government wanted to make sure that there would be no disclosure, and Podesta had promised some some releases of the information on UFOs. So this was a, a strike against the true revolution uh, from the Space Brothers uh, because you know this is a way to hold, hold back disclosure of the UFO contact that had been happening for years and years and years, and the Comrade Commander was going to expose to the world eventually. How did you discover of this meeting was taking place? 
I had I was just going to the beach, uh, and there I saw uh, these uh, uh, strange people. This uh, led by this uh, uh, weird little uh, shirtless uh, Russian guy who looked like a, a, a cross between uh, between uh, Bordiga, uh, brother Theodore, and uh, uh, Nikita Khrushchev. Okay, and and you saw this, and you thought this about him right away, and then what did he say to you, or how did he get you involved with, with what was happening? Well, I just watched him for a while. I listened to him, and then I had I had some conversations with him, and it uh, became uh, very clear to me that a lot of uh, a lot of questions I've had about the left and uh, about the uh, potential uh, of revolution uh, that 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 he had some some very good uh, answers to this. That uh, that we're we're all we're all waiting for something. We're all waiting for something more or less horrible to happen. Uh, that's entirely uh, disconnected from our revolutionary uh, activity or what we call our revolutionary activity. Uh, most of our work is busy work, but we're waiting for environmental collapse. We're uh, waiting for things to get better before they get worse, or get worse before they get better. But what we're really waiting for is a goddamn alien invasion. Okay. Do they actually use the phrase space brothers? I, I'm not sure they do, but they might as well. Why not? I, I'm just curious because it's a, it's, a, it's a particular term of art in ufology. So, right, the space brothers. I know, right? The space brothers are the Nordic types. Right. Yeah. Like the, the, they don't use that term. They just use the, the our comrades. I, our space I, I, was, comrades. I was just curious. Well, see, space brothers does sound like, like just like either like a, like a like a like a, a um like a funk act or a, 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 a an EDM production pair. There's the Greys and there's the Space Brothers and then there's the reptil reptiles and what else? Reptilians. Reptilians and. Uh, but but anyway, yeah. the Posadists are not. Um, they don't distinguish between the 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 aliens by race. They they're welcoming of all of our comrades from outer space, and they want full disclosure of every uh, great socialist uh, species that has visited the planet. That's what I want. I'm a Posadist now. Yeah. Hell yeah. <laughs> So that's, yeah, you, that's should, what yeah, about. you should really, uh, I'll put a link in the notes. You should listen to the, uh, the zero squared visits, the left forum, um, episode. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's something. Yeah, it's fun. And, and Sonia, but there's been real disclosure, you know, the New York times actually came out and said, yeah, there's a space pro there's a, there's a UFO program that's been receiving funds. The Harry Reid thing from yeah, yeah, yeah. alien well, alloys, alloys from over Christmas. Yeah, there's like there's supposed to be some stuff they don't know what it is in in a hangar of a of a billionaire who has like a gray alien on all of his warehouses. I, I, a little painted gray alien. I know because he, he's he's that much of, a, of an alienware fan. <laughs> this is crazy. Um, so yeah, it's like twenty two million dollars from the government. So it's enough to like. Uh, it's not enough to make a movie, but it's enough to find out whether or not aliens have visited Earth. Um, so yeah, so I, I want to talk to Eugene again for my podcast and not drink beer and be very serious about the disclosure movement. Can I come? Yeah, sure. I'm actually a huge UFO nerd. Are you talking about uh, Robert Bigelow? Is the billionaire? Yeah, Bigelow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I, uh, I. I'm a UFO nerd too. One of my. Oh really? Okay. Yeah, yeah. I guess that makes sense being a sci-fi. Yeah, nerd. yeah. I wrote a book called After the Saucers Landed. Okay. Yeah, so I did a lot of research for that, and also I was completely nuts in the '90s. Took LSD and thought they were going to come any day. Anyway, so um, did you think they were leftists? No. Well, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I did. Really. I mean, I didn't like write it down or consciously think so. But diet soap was usually it was actually was originally not usually was originally a like when I sent out the listing to um, Fact Sheet Five, 
I listed it as a UFO anarchy magazine. Whoa! <laughs> so did, got, did you guys ever care, did you ever caravan down to the uh, to the uh, the show in McMinnville? No. Uh, um, Unless you're talking about the Shakespeare Festival or something. No, 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 no. Shakespeare, no, Shakespeare Festival. Is in, yes, I was to say McVinville is the uh, is the yeah, other no, one. I know, I know McVinville. Right. I used to go to both places when I was canvassing for Osberg in the '90s. But anyway, um, okay. Two more topics. Um, okay. We did that one. We did that one. I feel like I'm under interrogation, uh, but on like a truth serum. Um, here's one. Can you talk about what was it like to? Um, You'll get a kick out of this, maybe. What was it like to uh, have Zizek on your show? <laughs> uh, hi, it's me here. Hello, Slovoy. Okay, wait a minute. I will just try to make the voice so that I hear you, okay? Do you hear me all right? Do you hear me all right? Oh, you sound great. I was nervous. I mean, I was a big fan of Zizek. Um, and it was also kind of a dream come true because I got to confront him on just a couple of points that I didn't agree with him about. Was this face-to-face -face or only over the phone? It's over Skype. Okay. So, um, I don't know if he even would remember me now. I doubt but it highly. He's yeah, he does tons of stuff, but it was a big deal for me. And, um, uh, so I really liked him. I like as, as guests go on the podcast, he was amongst the better guests. Like I would ask him back for sure. Okay, okay, no, I don't sound great, I sound, you know, we in Slovenia, we have a wonderful vulgar sounding, vulgar phrase, when somebody looks or sounds bad, bad, no? Uh-huh. You say, you look as if somebody just pulled you out of a cow's ass, you know, like, that's how I feel now. Uh, uh, and not, Certainly, yeah, yeah. Yeah, not just because I was already a fan, but like when I was talking to him, it was exactly the way you would expect talking to Zizek would be. <laughs> and uh, so the I... The truth meets the legend, yeah. Yeah. So he was not anything that I wasn't expecting. Uh, and we had a really nice conversation. And he... Uh, it, it, it was good. I, I you know, I, I really enjoyed it. I was... In the end, he didn't answer my questions any better than I might have thought he could. But... But there are some, you know, points on labor, fine points on labor theory value that I that were important to me, and as if you're a Marxist, they should be important. And he didn't really pick them up that well. And for, yes. for a Marxist, you have to believe in the labor theory of value that that's true. So I want to ask you: Do you hold with Marx's labor theory of value? It's all the problem, and there is a great debate. Moshe Postom did some contributions in the U.S. Some new German Marxist economists did it. You know who even? avoided this question. My good friend David Harvey. I had a debate with him at Birkbeck College and I asked him, okay, labor theory of value, yes or no? And he squeezed out, you know. Right. I think it can be saved, but uh, we have to totally desubstantialize it. Harvey knows this, German New Marxist knows it, you know. It's, uh, it has to be desubstantialized in the sense that it's not literally that my work individually gives something to a commodity that I'm producing. Commodities have value only as commodities within the exchange and so on. And Marx is very clear here, although he's not properly read. Second thing to do, where we have to elaborate further labor theory of value, is that Marx was too fast in linking it to a certain temporality. You know, you must know if you are Marxist, this notion of how complex labor can be reduced to simple labor, which right. can be measured by temporality. 
that I find a little bit problematic. I would say, of my guess, Zizek has been um, was the most exciting before it happened. Moish Pistone is one of the ones who I'm most interested in now. I like, hmm. I like him as a Marxist much more than I like Zizek as a Marxist. I think Zizek is a fun intellectual, and I like Zizek quite a lot as a person. Mm, as but a character. Moish Pistone is a the the more serious Marxist. Uh, last topic on my list of dashed off topics is um, you talk about um, previous guests of talking about like arguing with Varn with Derek Varn online slash uh, on on it's the been show. Been a while since we've argued really passionately. Mm-hmm. In the last few times that we argued online. He got really mad at me because I would I would push back and I would just go okay fine are we if you're done just don't tell anyone any of the secret things I told you <laughs> but, but I mean uh, uh, yeah no it's um, like he he's very heated guy and I'm not exactly not cranky when you when you start to try to be political and you try you're trying to win people to your point of view there are sacrifices you make that aren't just about your personal mor- morality. It also you make some sacrifices as to what you think the scope of your political vision could be. And, uh, you know, I feel as though it's absolutely imp- imp- an imperative to reach out to people and to communicate with people who aren't exactly like you and have a different identity or different uh, set of moral s- signals or symbols. But I, I also worry that we're going to fall into electoralism. Um, well, we already have. I mean, we already have. And here's the thing. There's – if we are honest about our politics and, – and let's be fair. I don't think most people are honest. There's no, there is no way for you to operate in our current world without some concessions to electoralism, if even to create the space for more revolutionary things to happen. Um, because what do we see happening to groups that don't engage in any electoralism? They become sects. They become cults. Become sects. They become cults. They feed themselves. They don't do anything outside of it. They denounce people outside of themselves. And a lot of times, even like, let's be honest from our experience, and we're not going to name names here, they actually actively support the status quo. That has happened. Yeah. And so we will fight occasionally, but um, it's been less bad since I started working in Zero. And he's not because he's working for me exactly, but maybe just because there's less to prove between the two of us i don't know but yeah he, he's yeah that's a how rocky relationship you know i've never met him i've never met him in person wow i've known him a long time we've well, talked we've done tons of podcasts together i've never met him in person. Like salt lake's only like what 18 hours that way but anyway well but he's only been there for a little while that's true i mean he's in cairo and korea that's true yeah Mexico. Um, I will say no. I mean, we we really enjoyed his uh, when Jacob and I talked to him back in October. It was uh, we we enjoyed it, and it's I think the episode that we recorded with him is either like our most listened to or like second most listened to episode I ever recorded. Second only to a, uh, a an episode we recorded on the history and uh, the history of Go. I'm not going to say it's the title, but it's the title. Well. And now you made me really uncomfortable because if I if this podcast doesn't outperform Varnes, now there's another reason why he's going to feel smug and superior. It's amazing how mm. politics always winds up being personal. <laughs> yeah, the uh, yeah, that's um, I quite like him actually, but we've never met. We should yeah. meet. We're going to meet soon because he's going to be coming out here to record a podcast with Thaddeus Russell. 
Well, shit. Well, let us know when he gets yeah, out here. We can all get together. Yeah. Do the, hang out in our, you know, in our in our Christmas light uh, lighted, uh, you know, scenic apartment basement apartment studio. Um, I think last but not least, G. Um, I'll ask you a similar question to what we asked him. Um, do you have any? Say off the top of your head, how about any reading selections, either of stuff that you think that like recently activated leftists should check out or stuff from either like your either your own personal catalog or the zero category you know shit zero uh, haymarket reversal catalog you think uh, folks should check out i have a follow-up okay for, well i'm i'm gonna say you should read the writing on the wall um uh, by Anselm Zappe. You should read Angel Nagel's book if you haven't. Uh, it's worthwhile. And you should read uh, Capital, Volume 1, at least. But, but uh, yeah. And then you should read Bash Bash Revolution. There. I plugged all the things I have to plug by just contract. Yes. Bash Bash Revolution is, of course, your own book, right? No, or? it's a novel. It's coming no. out in March. Okay. Yeah, it's uh, my March. Novel. Okay. I don't read books. Yeah. What YouTube videos would you recommend to me? <laughs> oh, YouTube videos. Um... Uh, there's the well. You should check out the Zero Books YouTube channel first. Right. We will and, link to that. Yeah, and, and then let's see. Let me think about this. Um, who's really good on YouTube? Well, I like um, uh, the Supreme Deluxe. What's that? Is that the name of it? Um, Vic Burger. Yeah, Vic Burger. Vic, I love Vic Burger. Burger. You should definitely check out. He works Vic for Super Docs. Yes. I like ContraPoints because I think Natalie does a lot of good stuff, or at least yeah. is getting there. You know, I like ContraPoints, and I really like the fact that ContraPoints debates the right. Mm -hmm. That ContraPoints, is a controversial opinion. Yeah, ContraPoints uh, did one on free speech, one, made one video on free speech that there were a couple of things I didn't like about it. The primary thing I didn't like about it was that it got taken down, yeah. it was flagged by these alt-right scumbags like as being controversial content and got taken down. Uh, you know, completely uh, incorrect, you know, for no reason at all. Yeah. Um, it was just a, an attack. It was like doxing. It was yeah. just crap. Uh, that was one thing I didn't like about it. But also, I didn't think the arguments were, were good. There were some there were some major flaws. Like, there was some shifting of goalposts, and there were some major flaws. And, uh, and so the other reason I didn't like it was taken down is because I left a comment trying to argue with that. Right. Um, but I like ContraPoints overall. But that wouldn't be one of the first ones I'd recommend. Uh, YouTube is, I mean, I guess it would be, because on the left, what is there? I mean, what is there on YouTube? Um, There's, uh, well, you, you, H Bomber guy mm -hmm. has been doing stuff. He's actually a video game guy who's kind of made the switch. There's this guy named Muke. Not familiar. Yeah, he I just does vlogging. That I, that, that he is, the reason I know who he is is because he has like a thousand more viewers than the Zero Books channel does, and he's just some college kid. Vlogging. Sure. His yes. name's Muke. I think so. M U K E. There's hmm. ContraPoints. There's Sean and Jen. Yeah, uh, Sean and Jen is fascinating because he has he's the most boring delivery. He's just like, "Hello, everyone." Hello, everyone, and somewhat belatedly, happy 2018. Uh, today's video is going to be something of a personal one. A little bit of me talking about myself, a little housekeeping, and a minor mission statement going forward in the next year. Yeah, just well, and it's usually just like one static picture, and yet he's—I think—is he—he's got at least. I think he's close to the the hundred k number. I think he's like yeah. at seventy five or something. He's, no, well, he's the, getting up there. Yeah. Well, I think the, the cool thing about, about uh, 
Sean, I think is, I think actually, but I think at this point, I think Jen just like cuts the videos together. I think it's like Sean, but it's like he does a lot of re re response videos, response arguments to a lot of like just like dumb right wing, you know, video posts. But um, like watching a couple, in fact, he put out a, uh, uh, I think it was like this was his first video of 2018 to actually talking about both the need for also the, the, um, the open space for is like, yeah, if you want to do like lefty YouTube vids, now is the time because, you know, it's like, you know, uh, a lot of like, you know, really like hard left people have been, uh, we've been on podcasts, you know, but now we need to like move into YouTube too, because YouTube happens to be this, and I learned this in a, in a podcast meetup last year, YouTube is now the second biggest search engine on the planet. After Google, after because and and who and owns YouTube? Google, yeah. Yes, that's why. That's one of the reasons why you know, for even for this show, I got a I got an account just to uh, take the uh, the audio from our shows and like stick it on YouTube. And one day I'll figure out what the hell to do for a visual component. Yeah, I I put all the podcasts on YouTube, and they do you know hundreds of listens. Here's some ones that are on my. This is what I subscribe to: Philosophy Overdose, The Majority with Sam Sater, my mm -hmm. own, uh, my own uh, channel, the right. Zero Books channel, the Strand Bookstore, uh, Reason TV. Okay, yeah, I'm not saying I agree with them. Um, Radley Balco uh, is actually one of my favorite writers, and he's a libertarian who used to do work for them. Yeah, hmm. they're not horrible. Red Letter well, li libertarians are usually right about at least one thing. Yeah, yeah. Red Letter Media. Hell yeah, Lefty Poll. Which is sort of, you know, that's uh, questionable. But I, I think they, it was like, like ex Redditors or Lefty Pole is 8chan, is it? 8chan, like anti poll, but still Chan. Edgy. Yeah, edgy. Sometimes, you know, probably walking right over the lines into crap. But, but um, you know, I talked to one of them uh, on the podcast and made a little video, like, answer, you know, I'll answer anything kind of like video response to a bunch of questions. Basically. Yeah, I think you, you posted a video. Well, it was just you playing video games and like responding to uh, yeah, popular questions. Yeah, the old punch out and no oh dear responded to questions. It was why is oh dear to the punch out? Oh well, no, just um, because of playing uh, punch out is timed for a uh, a for a CRT refreshing at thirty at thirty frames a second, and if you play it on anything other than that, the timing gets off according to certain members of Giant Bomb. So those were the things I subscribed to that that have updated recently. But oh, philosophy overdrive is, uh, I'm sorry, philosophy overdose. Oh, and blogging heads TV. Yeah. Hmm. Let me let me be very clear. I am not sharing my YouTube subscriptions. That's not happening. Was. <laughs> well, that's what I I skipped a couple. Like I didn't tell you that I subscribed to Truth Bombs by Ben Shapiro just to see the hell he's saying. Fair enough. Yeah. Oh wait, I, I guess I just did. Yeah. The the other guy i would mention actually and he's kind of a weird one is there's this guy on twitch named uh destiny uh, and his real name is stephen bonnell and he's made a really weird sort of side gig for himself basically doing debates with people uh he actually blew up because he did a, a debate about immigration and some alt-right topics with another video game guy and just sort of spun out of that and He's very much an edgy dude who came out of the gaming community and, you know, used to call people the N-word ironically and stuff like that. But he's also made a pretty dramatic shift socially to the left. 
Hmm. And I find him interesting because he's the one guy I've seen who's basically extremely willing to have conversations with people who are pretty far in the other direction and usually hold his own pretty well. I mean, he's done debates where he's been on the line with, you know, three people and is happy to just throw back. And he's, um, you know, he's definitely... He's he's doing that thing where you know he's willing to have the debate and he's actually willing to fight and in my opinion willing to win, which is something that I don't see some people on the left doing. Uh, at the same, are they not willing to fight or not willing to win? Um, I, I would say both actually. I mean, there's a lot of people who get into these debates and they're just completely unprepared for them. Like they're not willing to oh, do yeah. the research. Yeah. They're not willing to engage. They're not willing to, you know, be very careful to make sure that. I mean, like I there's that. I mean, there was that thing with Jordan Peterson where he got interviewed, and there's also things like... Mentioned earlier in this very recording. Yeah. Sure. And, and there's there's been a couple of cases where, you know, somebody will come up and, you know, prepare to, uh, you know, defeat them with logic, and it turns out that they're just not prepared to have that discussion. Destiny comes prepared. Yeah, yeah. Uh, at the moment, though, I have to say he's in the middle of an extremely ugly, basically, catfight with people over things that have nothing to do with politics. It's basically just the argument. The argument's got personal. Oh, and I think he's actually suspended from Twitter right now. Oh, boy. Oh, wow. Which is something I really find sort of disturbing about this, which is that it does seem like that almost inevitably happens when you're discussing these subjects in the online world. And that'll happen. All right, and I think that um, are we are we done? We are coming in. Any any final words from the uh, assort, the assembled crowd this evening, and or uh, where can you have anything to plug? And or where can we find you? How about that? Okay, so douglaslane.net is my own personal website. Zero books.net is the zero books website that you can go to uh, Google and type in zero books, and you'll find our website. You can type in Douglas Lane L A I N. You'll find me. If you um, go to Zero Books, and I'm sorry, go to Google, I've definitely been drinking, and you type in uh, boobs. No, never mind. That's the, the point is... Um, no, you don't type in boobs, do you? <laughs> <laughs> and then engine. you turn the calculator upside down, it's 8008. Anyway, so um, the point is, uh, yeah, I'm out there. Just Google me, and, and you can find the podcast, you can find the, the YouTube videos, you can find books. Um, and if you find me on Facebook, uh, you know... Be nice, because I, I get a lot of heat there. Awesome. Uh, you can reach the show, the, us, at uh, givingthemic. Actually, no, we don't even have a .com. Uh, SoundCloud.com slash givingthemic. Find us on Facebook at just Facebook.com slash givingthemic. Twitter is at givingthemic, shockingly. Um, you know, as you know, uh, you know, like, share, and subscribe. Be good to be good to each other. Um, you know, pet random uh, animals you find in the street, and yeah, Jacob. I am actually on Twitch now. Uh, you can search for me by just looking for Jacob Mercy, one word. If you want to have a political debate, come on, let's do this. Let's see what you got. Any topic, I'll take what either side. I don't even care. And I also uh, just released a short twine video game uh, on my website, which I would strongly recommend everyone check out. It's called uh, Barkles colon the game colon game of the year edition. And it is available at barkles.dog slash game. And it's free. So that's always nice. Then there you go. 
All right. Uh, on behalf of everyone assembled here on our lovely uh, rainy Monday night, uh, thank you for listening, ladies and gentlemen. <coughs> uh, no idea how the hell I'm going to edit all this down, but we'll see what happens. It was and, fun. Uh, the Pasadas are right. Uh, you say that now. All right. And good night. <laughs> Just don't make me sound as stupid as I actually was. We'll be fine. Well, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a possibility I face every episode.